Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. And this week on the show, we're on a Dubstep Wars tip. So um, <laughs> the first one of these that I did was with Nicole Cacciavellano, who is a super important promoter of Dubstep Parties in the US. And the reason I'm calling it Dubstep Wars, well, this kind of series of podcasts, Dubstep Wars, is basically because of the shift that happened in the US with the music around 2010, 11, 12. So what we're trying to do here is kind of chronicle the importing of Dubstep from the UK to the US, how it grew there and then what happened in that period. So that's kind of a specific aim of these episodes. We got into a lot more stuff than that with Nicole. And on this week's episodes with Joe Nice, we're going to get into a lot more stuff than that too, because Joe's a super interesting guy, genuinely interesting person. We talk about politics in this conversation a lot because Joe is a activist, like a real activist, and someone who I, who I really admire for his activism and the way he goes about it and just his passion for it. We don't always see eye to eye on political stuff, but that's completely fine. I think we're broadly coming from the same direction. But uh, we get into some meaty topics, which is great. Love having that kind of stuff on the show. So it's dubstep and politics this week on the Not A Diving podcast. So before we get into it, reminder to leave us a review or a rating. Wherever you listen to this, hit that five-star button. Thank you if you've already done it. If you haven't done it, then do it right now before we get any further. Just pause this and hit the rating button. Join us in the Discord if you've got anything to say. Still waiting for more suggestions about how we're going to do a subscription service, although we are going to be launching in a week or two. So yeah, hotfreshrecordings.com slash discords 
If you want to join, there's also a link in the show notes. And there's also a link in the show notes to the Spotify playlist, which contains lots of dubstep this week, as you would expect, but also all the episodes and loads of other stuff as well. So without further delay, here is Joe Nice. Joe Nice, welcome to the show. How are you doing, sir? Excellent. Happy to be here, brother. How are you? I'm I'm very well too. It's it's been a while since we chatted, man. It's been it actually has been years. When was the last time we saw each other? Oh boy. You know what? It was probably about five or six years ago in Berlin, Germany. I was walking up the steps oh, at Hard wow. Wax Recordings. You were walking down the steps. And I think you had a yeah, I think you had a Joy Division record or Joy Division test press in your hand. And I was like, oh, damn. what's up, Paul? What's going on, sir? Yeah, so it's been a while. It's been a long, long, long time. And a bunch of stuff has happened in between oh, those two my dates. Yeah, yeah, my gosh. So, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that I want to get into with you. Um, and, uh, I mean, of course, dubstep is, is a main one. Um, of course. Tell me about just to get just to kick off. Tell me about tell me what the dubstep scene in the US is like right now. Like, what is your um, you know the, the shows that you're playing and you know like the, the kind of the, the, the scene in the different cities. Like, how tell me about it at a, a kind of like bird's eye view level. It's you know it's growing. It's still growing, and yet at the same time, I feel that there's the US has certainly made its mark from from the days of 10 to 12 years ago when United States dubstep or, or let me rephrase it, North American dubstep was primarily known as bro step. And I think that we've washed away the stink of that label now and and it's now become dubstep, but it certainly has its own, its own flavor. It's, I don't necessarily think it sounds as quote unquote dubby as something that you would might maybe hear in Bristol or in South London or in Leeds or Manchester, but it certainly has its own flavor and there are plenty of producers now that are making some magnificent music and you're seeing a, you're hearing it a lot at festivals and you're seeing a lot of these producers come up and it's dubstep is in a good place right now in the United States and in Canada but i certainly feel that at times there is a lot of similarity within the sound between north american and canadian producers and I, my biggest fear is that there's that you end up with this groupthink or this copycat mentality of what's being heard and what's being played. So, so you hear a producer hear something, you hear something at a at a live at an event, whether it's a club or at a festival, and then another producer might be standing on stage and might say, "Whoa, okay, hey, you know what? I like that. Let me do something like that." And then they do something like that, and then eventually you end up with all these indiscernible sounds and it's difficult to tell a produce one producer from another. And I don't want that to happen on this side of the Atlantic. And quite honestly, I don't think that ever happened where you are. I don't think that ever happened in the UK and other parts of Europe because there, there was a sure there was a similarity between producers, but there, but many of the producers maintained their individuality. You knew a Mahler tune when you heard it. You knew a Scream tune when you heard it. You know a Benga tune when you heard it. You knew a, a, a Remedan Man tune when you heard it or a, or a Addison Groove tune when you heard it. You just knew, you, hell, you knew a Scuba tune when you heard it. it. It was just, there was, everything just kind of worked. Everybody had their own thing and it all worked together. 
And I just want to see more of that in the US and in Canada. And I don't want it to become, I don't want the sound to become homogenized. I want there to be some heterogeneity within the sound. I don't want everything to just be watered down, but it's in a good place right now. So are there, um, um, I mean, obviously the way this sort of, the way this, I was going to say the way the market works in the US, which is such a horrible way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but, but the way, the way the kind of wider kind of North American scene works is obviously very, very much split up by city. So where, which cities would you say are doing it like the, the most right now? Denver, Denver, first stop, full stop, Denver, black box, Denver. Well, yeah, we, we had Nicole on the show and, um, she was, uh, yeah, she was, um, talking a good game on it and I actually played the black box not too long ago it's great great club really great club yeah it's a wonderful club it's a wonderful club Denver I think does excellent work oh gosh Detroit Michigan Detroit's got some things going on there hmm Minneapolis obviously Minneapolis there's a couple of different events going on there and obviously the Infrasound Music Festival which takes place a couple of times a year just outside of Minneapolis it's awesome Los Angeles is doing well San Francisco there's consistent events that I'm seeing in Seattle. So yeah, Portland, Oregon has got things going on. So New York, even though there's not the, the, the two big events that basically were around back in the day, dub war and reconstruct, we're still seeing some things pop up here and there in New York city. So Miami with the American grime crews doing some things quite well. Houston is still live and kicking. So yeah, there's a lot going on in a lot of different places. And yeah, it's working. Chicago, Chicago's got things going on again. So it's, it's good. Yeah. Okay. It's good. But black boxes for me is the space black box for me is that's, that's the spot. Yeah. I mean, I had a great time when I played there. I just did a Thursday, but it was, um, they got a great system and it's, you know, just a great setup and like, it's how a, that's how a club should be. You know, it's like totally. I agree. Thoroughly agree. So, um, thoroughly agree. Okay. I want to, I want to kind of dig pretty deep into how into the kind of the story of dubstep in 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 North America, but just just keeping sort of slightly current, just for the time being. Like you you were saying that um, that, like the sound has been sort of reclaimed sort of to an extent. I think is what you were what you were getting out of the top. I agree. So, yes. Yes. So yeah, just tell me a little bit about how that has played out because obviously the whole kind of bro thing bro step thing became huge and one of the interesting things about my conversation with Nicole is that she was kind of breaking down like these kind of subgenres to me which I was completely unaware of you know stuff like rid- rhythm and, and and that kind of stuff I was just like wow I've just have no idea about any, any of this has, has worked so can you just tell me a little bit about how like the last like the last few years how how things have kind of like shaken out to, to get to the point that where we are now I think so much is shaken out because I think so many of, maybe not so many of us, but a few of us that were around pre-bro step had a feeling that bro step wasn't going to last. We just had to wait out, right, essentially, for lack of a better term, ride out the storm. And, and I think that's kind of what happened. I think a lot of people's personal musical taste and desires changed from constant aggression to getting back to music sounding like music. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's really what happened. So I think after a while you get tired of everything sounding all pugnacious and angry and aggressive and over-processed. You eventually want music with your music. And over time, 
that changed and you had a crop of new producers coming up turning and sound especially i i think some of what what those three brothers are doing right now is just absolutely incredible i think so much of what you're hearing coming from canada right now between abstract sonnets and raz cult cuts there's a lot of talent coming out and it's you're seeing more you're hearing more producers coming up with what they think dubstep should sound like in their own special way and you know it's it's and then a lot of times it's almost i don't want to say it's blurred the lines of genre because quite honestly i know you mentioned rhythm earlier on in this conversation i don't really know what rhythm is because i'm just like you know because i because i'm so locked into what i like to play and what i like to present and what i'm learning to make because i'm learning ableton right now so i'm still learn i'm in the process of learning to make music and what i think should be what i would like to hear more of in a club so right 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 let me, let me just let me just let me just stop you a minute because like the rhythm thing just like like i said it blew my mind and the way nicole described it was just like it just sounds like jake's tunes <laughs> so it's just like okay fair enough but anyway sorry carry on yeah you. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. And and, and again, respect to Jake's. And, and it's and, and again, I like variety when I when I hear music, and not only when I hear music, but when I play music. I mean, sure, there's a lot of stuff that I like from certain producers, but I'm not necessarily interested in playing 35 or 40 minutes or an hour of a particular producer's music or a particular producer's music and other producers that sound like other producers' music. If that makes sense, you know, I like, I like variety in, in what I play. So even though there's a lot of variety out there now, I still think there's an entire eight lane highway of music that nobody's driving down at, in terms of what's hap- what could be done at 140 beats per minute. And I still think there's a lot of room for growth and improvement, even though in my opinion, the 140 beats per minute communities doing quite decently in North America. Yeah. I mean, I've recently got back into playing around that kind of tempo and what, what's great about it is there's, there are so many things you can just like pull into it. So you can play techno, like you can play breaks, you can play obviously dubstep and like, it's just quite fun doing it. And there's just quite a wide, like, well, there's a completely deep palette of things you can pull in and as a dj it's just great you know absolutely great exactly exactly and there's something in it for everybody yeah yeah totally and and i completely agree that having a you know, covering bases in a dj set like having a wide variety is is absolutely how you should do it i think i think the challenge maybe sometimes is you know because i've been i've spent a long time playing house and techno and the difference there is you just get much longer sets. Yes. So you get three hours to mess around, like pretty much every time, minimum two hours and sometimes three or four or even you know more mm-hmm. than that. And that right. just gives you just, you know, you can just do whatever you want, you know, as long as you keep people moving. Like it's just like there's just so let's there's less pressure you know compared to an hour long dj exactly. set or an hour and a half where you just have to make as much <laughs> impact as possible like i played a fabric on friday for the fabric friday night for the first time in years and played an hour and a half mm-hmm. and it's just a different mindset you know it's like yeah, you've got to be you've got to be hitting those hitting those drops <laughs> it really do but i mean it's it, it takes i think it takes a lot of confidence as a dj to you know to to not 
fall into that trap and to you know and to do different stuff and i think you know i mean i've always loved your dj sets and that's been those have Thank always you, been a, appreciate that been a kind of feature of those things you know it's actually having the confidence to do that kind of stuff yeah and i think so much of that confidence comes from being products of your environment i mean where i grew up i grew up in baltimore and baltimore again I, my frame of reference or my entry into electronic dance music wasn't from jungle or drum and bass. And that's typically what you hear and or see with a lot of producers that are in bass music, especially at 140 beats per minute. They're either coming from a jungle background or a breaks background or a drum and bass background. My background was completely different. I grew up listening to Baltimore Club and soulful house music. So naturally, the, the, the music that I like playing within 140 beats per minute feels more musical and feels more house tempo-ish. There's a lot more kicks. There's a lot more steady kicks in, in, um, in what I enjoy playing. So as a result, that, that's, those, those are the sounds and that's the music I tend to gravitate more towards. Even when I'm not listening to dubstep, the electronic music that I find myself listening to, I find myself listening to a lot of soulful house music. I'm still playing old masters at work records and music from the eighties and nineties, Josh Milan and blaze. I love that stuff. That's, that's, you know, black coffee, you know, Monique Bingham, that you know, that's the kind of vibe that I'm on. I'm not, I'm not necessarily listening to jungle and drum and breaks and drum and bass and breaks when I'm not listening to dubstep. So, so much of that confidence comes from being a, and the other part of it is when I was growing up, you know, there weren't a lot of large clubs to play music in. So you had these small parties, but then a lot of this stuff was house parties. So the DJs that I grew up watching and listening to, they would play anything at any time. And they had the confidence to do it because a lot of these parties that, they, that I was going to 30 years ago, you didn't have, there wasn't high speed internet. You couldn't download an MP3 of what you just heard the night before, but it's because somebody recorded it. And the radio stations were good, but you, everybody wanted a bit of something. So they felt seen and heard and represented at a party. So you had to play. If you were a DJ playing vinyl, you couldn't come in there with just one or two milk crates full of records and call it a night. No, you came with two or three milk crates, a small bag of 45s. And you had, you touched everything. You touched everything. And if you, if you, if you played a two hour set and you walked away and your first words were, man, I got, I played everything I wanted to play. Then in my opinion, you didn't do what you were supposed to be doing because you shouldn't play for two hours and feel like you played everything you wanted to play. You should be in there like, damn, I only got two hours to play, man. I didn't play this. I didn't play this. I wanted to get to this. I was going to reach for this, but I thought I'd play this instead. I, there's so no, nah, I mean, hell, a lot of the times when I play dubstep shows, I, I tend to get 90 minutes and many hours. A lot of times I'll also get two hours, but most of the time I'm not playing 60 minutes. I'm not playing 60 minutes. I'm getting 90 minutes. And a lot of times I'm getting two hours and now I'm mixing on three decks on CDJs. So with me, the way I grew up, I, I grew up playing quick. I had to mix fast. So now on CDJs, I'm mixing faster. So I'm getting to a lot of music in a longer, even though I have a long time to play. And I guess that's the difference between when you listen to house and techno as opposed to dubstep. Dubstep is, in my opinion, impatient music. 
It's impatient. You're, right. you, that drop hit better be there at 16 bars or at 32 bars. If, if you're giving me a 48-bar drop, I'm going to be like, yo, come on. What the hell are you doing? Are you serious? <laughs> Yes, yo, where is this drop? What's going on? So with, with and, and in techno, it's totally the opposite. In techno, you might have a 64 bar intro. So you have to wait for that drop to hit. And house, you might get us. I mean, there might not be a drop. Or there might not know? be a drop. Oh, that's that, Thank you very much. They're the exact opposite. There might not be a drop. It's going right in. And you're getting those kicks right away. With house, you might get a song that's seven minutes and 54 seconds and a DJ might play six minutes and 12 seconds of that seven minute and 54 second song with dubstep. You're not getting a whole lot of songs that are six minutes and 12 seconds. You're getting stuff. That's three forty eight, four thirty two. You might get a five fifteen or a five minute and 20 second song here and there, but you're not getting some seven minute, you know, song that's out there. No, you're not doing that. And if you get a, if somebody makes a seven minute song, I can guarantee you 99% of those DJs aren't playing five and a half minutes of that seven minute song. You're getting, <laughs> so true, yeah. you're getting two and a half, maybe three minutes. If you're lucky, if you're lucky. And if you're a DJ that play has a tendency to play fast like me, then you're getting a minute 45, maybe two minutes. Yeah, 64 bars, isn't it? And then you're, you're done. Yeah, you get, <laughs> you're done. On to the next, on to the next. Because again, I understand, I mean, hell, not only do I play dubstep and I'm starting to learn how to produce dubstep, but I'm also a fan of the genre and the culture and the sound. I know what I like to hear and how I like it presented when I'm playing it. And I see people's reactions when you hold a tune out for a bit longer than I feel it should be held out. You know, if you're, I mean, it's one thing if you're, you know, beat juggling or you're playing with basses or you got some effects going on and you're playing around with the tune and you got a blend going for like 90 seconds, maybe two minutes. That's one thing. But if you're playing just one tune on a loud system for two minutes, that shouldn't be the case. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. You know, the, the, the trains have to be on schedule, but they also have to be on time because you only have so much time to play. And just like a train, you have to get so many passengers on the train to get them where they have to go at a particular time. It's not that much different than DJing. When you're DJing, you have a certain amount of time and there's only so many cars on that train and only so many people can get on that train. And you got to you got to move those people However, you got to move them, and it's no different than DJing. You got to keep them people moving. Yeah, it's it's funny because basically what what it is with dubstep, what you've just described, right, is like it's basically the the frequency of those those big kind of moments, right? Those those just changes, those drops, like, and then they've got to have a hap- got to happen on a certain schedule, like you said. Yes. And what I found with with DJing techno, and this took me a little while to to clock, is that it's. It's a similar sort of thing, but what it is is you have to have a constant momentum. Yes, basically. So it's just it's just got to be rolling all the time, basically. And if and if the, if there's a certain point at which you decide to stop it, now that's something you've got to really think about, and you've got to really put it in the right place. Mm-hmm. Because if you're constantly stopping and starting, you just lose the crowd immediately. Exactly. But if you have a you, you get into that thing where it's just constantly rolling along and rolling along and rolling along, that's how you build up a kind of an, an atmosphere and on a techno dance floor, and it's it's a it's a similar idea, but it's just it, done in a completely different way 
to how you how you DJ bass music and you know, dubstep in particular. It's just it's similar with drum and bass stuff, but like I mean, dubstep is absolutely like that. Yeah, you. I mean, you just can't let you. you can't let the thing get away from you because people just people just lose interest. You know, they just they just wander off. Yeah. You know, <laughs> mentally as much as anything. Yeah, else. and and again, it's 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 it's, and it's an impatient crowd and it's an impatient sound. So you have to get people's attention right away. It, it's what's interesting because I mean I, I've taken up exercise quite a bit over the past several years. And there's a couple of different types of training that most people adopt. You can adopt either low intensity, steady state training or high intensity interval training. Dubstep is hit. Dubstep is doing 10 burpees or doing 30 seconds of burpees and then 30 seconds off, 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off because it's intense, intense, intense. And then you kind of let the break kind of be a little bit of a breather that you come back in again with with house or techno house and techno is that is that five mile jog on the treadmill yeah and you're keeping yeah. it at the same pace for at about one and a half miles a, a relatively decent incline to you build a little bit more resistance but the minute you stop on a treadmill it takes about 30 seconds to a minute to get your legs back under you again and keep moving because you got into a rhythm of just constantly keeping your feet going because the treadmill is pushing you along. That is a, that's a perfect analogy. That is a perfect analogy. <laughs> that's absolutely it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The treadmills keep pushing you along, but with dubstep, unless you just have ridiculous cardiovascular conditioning and you can do high intensity training for a long period of time, by default, it wouldn't be high intensity interval training because you wouldn't be breaking it up. You would just be constantly going. And then at that point, are you even really playing dubstep? You're probably more along the lines that you're probably playing Gabber at that point where the BPM's <laughs> 212 beats per minute and it's, <laughs> and then after about 45 minutes of that, you're physically exhausted because you spent so much mental energy listening to a, a genre of music that's that fast and aggressive and angry and your mind is trying to process what's going on. So your body follows your mind and your mind can only deal with so much before it just is like, yo, I'm burnt out mentally. Then you burn out physically and then you're just like, the hell with this, I'm done. Yeah, totally. Okay, let's let's step back a bit. Yes, sir. You mentioned before your, well, you, you touched on your, your musical kind of roots a little bit and yep. I want to get mm-hmm. into like I essentially want to get into how dubstep made it to the US but let's do it in the context of your career since you know uh you're a super important DJ um I appreciate that how well it's true man how did you get into DJing like what was your route in in the first place wow my route into DJing probably started let me think we're in 2022 now 31 years ago 1991 bought my first pair of turntables back in 1991 and I was completely hooked on Baltimore Club. Now, how I got into electronic, I think to kind of give you a bit more background is how I really got into electronic music. I mean, Baltimore has its own sound, but Baltimore is really known for Baltimore Club, but we're also known for Soulful House. The Basement Boys are from here. DJ Charisma's from Baltimore. One of the legends of house music, Alternate she's from Baltimore. So, you know, Dinga Gaba, who has the Diplomat Records label, Baltimore. So there's a lot of legends that have come from Baltimore in the in in house music, and so much of 
what I grew up listening to was just a lot of the radio. There was a college radio station, a black college and university in Baltimore called Morgan State University. And on Saturday nights, they would have a show called The Underground Experience. It was from 7 p.m. to 12 a.m. And it was the same two DJs, DJ Pope and DJ OG. They were known as the Brothers in the Struggle. And they would play five hours of just nothing but soulful house. And it, it, you just... And I remember being 14, 15 years old, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't necessarily going out to the movies or tagging out. I would stay at home and I got the tape in the tape deck and I'm recording this old Max LUR90, the green tapes, and you tape, flip it over, tape again. They'd have a commercial break, then get another tape, tape, and then tape it again. And I'm listening to that in my Walkman all week when I go to school when I was in high school. So I was like, you know what? I eventually want to get a pair of turntables. And then Baltimore Club was also being played around that time. And there are some legends from back in the day, Baltimore Club-wise, um, Frank Ski, um, DJ Sean Marshall, um, Mark Henry, Sean Caesar, Sean Caesar and Scotty B. They started the Unruly Records label, which is still going today. But the guy for me that I guess my, not only was the guy that really was kind of set the bar for me DJing across any genre, but kind of was my entry into wanting to become a DJ was a Baltimore club DJ named DJ Booby. Booby, every time I saw him play, every time I heard, I bought one of those Booby club tapes that would come out every three weeks to every month and you'd pay eight or $10 for them and you'd buy them at the Reisterstown Road Plaza at the Metro 2 record shop. I would I would take a I would take two buses to go out there to buy the tapes and I was buying records back then too and it was it was it's a great time to be alive I tell you but you listen to his you listen to the tapes and these are on two turntables on an old Stanton mixer with a high and a low and there's no mid it's high and low there's a two up faders there's a cross fader in the middle and he's probably got some some Techniques SL 1200s the old 1200s that clicked at the zero. So <laughs> yeah. with a pitch, with a pitch clicked at the zero, you know, and, and, and there's a lot of D, there's a lot of DJs that are going to be listening to this podcast and be like, Oh damn, I remember those old 12s, the old 12s that pitched to the zero and, and the tone arm would be a little bit wobbly. So, and especially if you're a scratch DJ back in those days, you put at minimum, you're putting a dime on top of the cartridge. You tape a dime to the cartridge. Sometimes you tape a nickel on top of it. Other times you just put a full quarter on top of the head shell <laughs> that you'd have the tone arm pointing straight down. You're you're creating this ugly record burn every time you're scratching, but you know, that's what DJs did back in the day. So Booby was just cutting up just 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 the way he would go in and out of tunes. And then he'd 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 play R and B songs and then he'd put a Baltimore club tune behind it. And we're just like how in the hell did he do this? There's no way. Come on. And you're rewinding the tape to try to figure it out. And then everybody back in the day, they had their turntables in their parents' basement. That's what I did. So you go to the, I go to the basement and then I'm trying to do it. And I'm like, yo, how did he do this? What in the, what, what in the world? And it, it just opened my mind to the possibilities of being a DJ. So then when I first started DJing, I started buying Baltimore Club. That's all I did. I was buying Baltimore Club and Soulful House music. That's what I was doing. And I was just playing. And I was just wanted to keep playing, wanted to keep playing. And then I went to college and I just fell out of love with Baltimore Club. It was just it was like, ah, I don't, I'm not feeling it anymore. It's not, it's not as creative as it once was. So did you stay in Baltimore for college? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was an undergrad at college. Absolutely. I'm still in Baltimore. 
And then after that, UK Garage kind of fell into my lap. An old friend of mine brought over some UK Garage CDs and they, these were these CD packs back in the late 90s. And you had like Norris the Boss, Windross, and um, gosh, I'm trying to think, DJ Luck and MC Neat. You, you had these proper UKG DJs that had put out these double packs of CDs and you're just listening to them. And it's just like, yo, you know what? I'm feeling this. I can get with this. And this is probably what, 1980, 1998, 1999 at this point. Yeah. And then, excuse me. And then right around that time, Wookie started putting out his stuff. And then on the pop side of that was Craig David. So you had Craig David doing his thing. And and for the life of me, I don't know why Craig David wasn't more of a thing in the United States. I have no idea. Was he anything at all? Or what, what, or where did he go? How did he do? You know, he was a thing, but he should have been more of a thing. That's what I'm saying. Right. Craig David, man, Craig David should have been, I, I mean, come on. I mean, I mean, he still managed to sell 20 million albums somehow. I don't know completely sure how he managed to do that. But like, yeah, you're, you're totally right because he's an amazing singer and he could quite easily. He's an amazing a- voice and it's amazing singer. And the beats were, yeah. And then all the, the, the just the stuff on the albums were great. I mean, you play, you put on walking away right now. Come on, seven yeah. days? You serious, man? Those people know the word. People still vibe with that stuff. But then all the remixes that came from that stuff, like all the Sunship remixes, the MJ Cole remixes, and then obviously all the Wookie remixes that came out of that. So then I was like, yo, who is this brother Wookie? Then I started buying all these Wookie records. And then I'm starting looking around for just what this sound was. And then obviously the Accelerator magazine cover with dubstep, with, with, with horsepower on the cover. That was a big thing for me. Really? Okay. Let me, let me, let me stop you there because I mean, I've seen that cover, but I, I mean, was, yeah. was Accelerator a really big magazine in the States at the time? Because I mean, we got it in the UK, but it was no. It, it was, it was a thing. There were, this is back in the day when the internet wasn't the internet that we know it to be now. And cell phones, cell phones were the size of car batteries back in 1999 and 2000. So you had to get your musical knowledge from somewhere. So you were either listening to radio or you were buying magazines. And you had not you had multiple subscriptions to magazines. If you wanted to know what was going on in hip hop, you read Word Up magazine or you read The Source. That's what you were doing. If you wanted to find out what was going on in R and B, a lot of the times you were list, you were reading Ebony magazine or Essence magazine or Jet magazine, or you're just listening to your radio stations. Because in a lot of urban areas and a lot of large cities, and and again, I don't mind saying this, they had the quote unquote black radio stations. They had them, and and the on these black radio stations, they catered to R and B. So in Baltimore, you had ninety two Q, and you had Magic ninety five point nine. In Washington D.C., you had ninety five point five, and then you had a college radio station called ninety six point three WHUR Howard University Radio. Baltimore, and, and then obviously jazz was a part of that also. So ninety six point three at Howard University would also play their jazz. 88.9 WEAA FM Morgan State University Radio in Baltimore would be would be the jazz station. So you got a lot of your musical knowledge from just listening to music and then you listened to the radio hosts talk about the music and talk about the singers and kind of educate you on what was going on because not everybody had the opportunity to 
buy you could you could buy for example you could buy a cd but then you had your cd wallets in your car but you didn't necessarily read the liner notes so you had a lot of these djs that were not only presenting the music but they were educating you at, at the same time just hang on a second. let me let me just let me just interrupt yeah. you there for a sec just going back to magazines so that yep. um accelerator cover was a big deal it was it was horsepower right that was that was on that cover. of course I, it was absolutely yeah, right so it's pretty it must have been like I'm just trying to put this together in my mind because like they weren't a big act in the UK really no like you mm-hmm. know in, in the grand scheme of things um, so for them to be put on the cover of a of a pretty prominent US mag was a pretty big deal right it, it, it was a big deal because it's for, it wasn't necessarily a big deal for a lot of people in the US because I don't think there were many people in the US that were understanding other genres of UK influenced bass music other than breaks and drum and bass. It seems pretty mad, right? Who like do you know who the editor was at the time of Exeter? I don't remember. I don't yeah, remember. Yeah, okay. I don't remember. I'm gonna put a pin in that and look into that. But yeah, anyway, go on. Yeah, I don't remember. So at that time I was buying records. I was consistently buying records. And then right around that same time I would start to go out to shows at this local club in Baltimore called Sonar. And Sonar would have drum and bass DJs coming out and playing and they'd have Briggs DJs but every once in a while you'd have a UK garage DJ every once in a while and I'm talking like once every two or three months and every and since I was one of the people that was really enthusiastic about the sound I would always go out to those particular shows and I got to be friends with a lot of the people who would come over um, DJs okay like, so yeah I was I was just gonna ask when you say when you sorry sorry to interrupt yeah go ahead. but um I was just gonna ask when you say UK garage DJ you mean a a UK DJ Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm not okay. talking US. I'm talking UK garage DJs. They 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 sounded like you when they spoke. I'm talking UK. <laughs> I'm not talking like somebody sure, from sure, sure. from New York or San Francisco that just happens to have a few MJ Cole records or a few Sunship records or you know right. got lucky and found some Todd Edwards records out of records at Amoeba Music <laughs> in San Francisco. No, I'm talking proper uk djs you know so you know it was it was emma feline you had gosh wow i haven't heard that name for a while wow yeah yeah get ready get ready I, we're, we're gonna keep digging have oris j back in the day oris yeah. j of course the the legend jada flex my oh, guy man. jay yep. yeah um zed bias so i mean it, you you heard these names coming out it was it was it was a thing so then let me think it was I started buying records and then there were obviously the next big evolution to all of this was music forums, music forums. Because again, Facebook didn't exist in 2001. You didn't have Facebook. You didn't have Instagram, Twitter. No, none of that stuff was around. So music forums were around. Music forums were it. And it just seemed like every community had its own forum and they had their own rules. So everybody was bouncing around between different forums to find out what other cities were doing because that's kind of how you kept in touch. The forums were essentially the the social media outlet for a particular city or region or area. So you know, there was one in New York City, there was one in Washington, D.C. I know there was one in a few of them going around in a bunch of different cities. And one of the ones for the UK was dubplate.net. That was one of the big ones, dubplate.net. Yep. As discussed on this show before. Yeah, super important. Yeah, yeah, super important. Dubplate.net was kind of a big thing. And 
this the next part of this seems almost too unbelievable to be true but it is what happened so we're going to keep digging so it was right around that time when AOL instant messenger was a thing and forms were a thing and the one event that everybody could sort of rely on in the UK to hear dubstep was forward plastic people on curtain road and shortage. Everybody knew where it was. And this was back in the day when it was the first Thursday of every month. So if you didn't go that first Thursday, you weren't hearing anything dubstep ish again for the rest of the month until the next first Thursday of the next month. That was it. Certainly not unless it was coming out of a radio anyway. <laughs> exactly. Unless it was unless it was a radio show. Unless it was a radio show. And even if it was a radio show, there weren't a whole lot of dubstep DJs playing on pirate radio back then. I mean, it, it, it was a lot. It was a lot of grime, a lot of UK garage, a lot of house. But the, you, know, you weren't getting a whole lot of dubstep DJs playing dubstep back in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. It just wasn't a thing. So I remember being on some forums here and there and and then I had an AOL instant messenger handle for the life of me. I can't remember what it was, but I remember t- somebody, people, the, the one guy who was, who kind of bridged the gap between grime and dubstep more than anybody was back in the day, plastic man, now plastician. And with his songs, with his tunes, he was, at least from my standpoint, too grime to be dubstep, but too dubstep to be grime. <laughs> yeah. But if you listen to a lot, but if you listen to a lot of those old records that he put out, especially the stuff on the road record label, like Print Loop, Sandstorm, Oof. The Lift. The Lift is an amazing track. Yeah, everybody knows. Yeah, those are classics. Classics. Hard Graft, then the stuff, he, the remix that he did with Mark One. Yeah, all of that stuff, it, it kind of, it blurred the lines between grime and dubstep. And I was like, yo, I like all of this stuff. I'm into it. Because he was getting a lot, he was getting a lot of, a lot of heat for not being grime or not being just dubstep. And I was like, yo, I like, I like a lot, all this stuff. So I remember one thing, next thing, and everybody back in those days on forums, you had your email address and you had your, your ICQ handle and then you had your AOL instant messenger handle. Everybody had them kind of linked on your profile. So one next, one day I get a message and it's from Plastic Man. I'm like, yo, what the hell? He's like, yo, hey, um, I hear you're playing music. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm playing dubstep in the States. I'm playing some things here and there. He goes, let me send you some tunes. So he said to me these, you know, 192K MP3s <laughs> on AOL right. Instant Messenger, <laughs> right, on a 28.8 DSL connection and... I'm like, yo, send this to me at midnight, right? <laughs> send it to me at midnight. Don't send it to me at four o'clock in the afternoon my time because nah, it ain't going to work. That thing will stop, start, stop, start. I'll be waiting eight hours for a, for a 12 megabyte file. So he started sending me stuff. So then word got around that there's this guy in, North, in the United States that's playing dubstep. There's this guy. So I was the only place I was really buying records from back in the day was, of course, Big Apple Records. And of course, the guy who was behind the counter at Big Apple Records was none other than Hatcher. He was he was there. He was the guy. So 
So hang on a second, hang on a second. Let, let me, let me, let me, okay, maybe, 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 maybe you're about to answer my question, but I want to just, just yeah. clarify a little bit where you were as a DJ. So had you started playing shows? Like when did you? Yes, I was start, I was playing shows. Yes, I was absolutely playing shows. I was playing shows in Baltimore around late 2000, early 2001. I was playing dubstep shows because there was a crew of- and so, But um. Sorry, go on. No, go ahead. You got it. Go, you go well, ahead. I was going to say, when did you first start playing shows? Though? Like, where was the, what, what was your, what were your first kind of experiences playing in a club, in a proper club? In the, was it that dubstep stuff or was it before then? It, it was really just dubstep stuff. It, it wasn't really, I mean, I was playing Baltimore club, but it was really just house parties. It wasn't really in a club environment, but I would go to Baltimore club shows at clubs, but I was never asked to play those shows because it, no, I mean, I, I was only DJing for a year and a half or two years or so. And I just started DJing. So by the time I was even able to get into the clubs, I was 16, 17 years old, and I still really didn't know what I was doing DJing wise. And I certainly wasn't as proficient as the DJs I was listening to back then, especially DJ Booby, who still to this day, I mean, he jumps on Facebook Live for a mix. I'm like, yo, I'm watching. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm watching. And I'm st- and, and and every time I see him play, I feel it feels like it's 1993 all over again. I'm like, how the I'm like, but now because I'm seeing him do stuff, and now I've obviously gotten a lot better with what I'm doing. I'm kind of able to figure out what he's doing in the mix, mix wise, and then I'm like, okay, I see what he did there, and then it's all good. But when you don't see when you when you're buying you're buying a tape back in 1989 or 1990, and then you don't have a visual representation of what's going on, you're only you're only your ears can to kind of figure out what's being done it, it's it makes it even more of a mystery because you can't see it you're only hearing it but now you watch it on facebook live you can see it and hear it it's kind of removed some of the mystery but then you have a deeper appreciation for what you had to go through to hone your skills to a point where you're able to do what these other djs were doing back in the day and that what you could what you're able to do now it's yeah it's 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 guess it's learning it's that sort of experiential learning that we all have to go through, whether we're learning how to DJ or learning how to produce or anything else in life. But so getting back to. Yeah, back to Big, back to big Apple. That was my second question. Did you come over to London then? Uh, I've, I'd come over to London a couple of times. I come over right. to London a couple of times. But there, let me kind of connect the dots between that and then yeah, yeah. the DJing because it'll make it'll, it'll make more sense if I do it that way. So I had started DJing and then there was a crew of DJs around Baltimore. There were three other DJs around Baltimore that were all interested in playing um, UK-influenced bass music. And then we called ourselves the Two Charming Crew because... Back in the day, two-step was kind of the thing, and Baltimore was known as Charm City, so two charming crew. And there were four of us, and I was the guy playing dubstep. That was me. So the only place that I really found online to buy a lot of the music that I was interested in playing was Big Apple Records. So sure, email was a thing, but it just made more sense to just call the record store. Just call them up. And, you know, it was plus four, four drop the zero if you're coming calling from America and then the rest of the numbers. So I'd call up and every time, and, and you look at the website and you see that there's a test press of um, horsepower show lay. And I'm like, oh shit, I got to get that. Cause these test presses, you only get, you know how it is. You got a record label. I got a record label. You only get five test presses typically when you make a record. So they were selling test presses online. I'm like, yo, I got to get this test press. So and I know I'm not the only person out there looking at this. So I, there are plenty of times I would call the record store and 
this is right around the same time where I met Jada Flex and started opening up for him every time he would come to Baltimore and Oris J. Because I, I was the guy playing dubstep, so I would always open up for them every time they came to Baltimore. So I got a relationship with them. So I would I would call up and this is now probably like 2001 going into 2002. And the guy that would always answer the phone at the record store was Hatcher. He would always answer the phone. And we'd always get in conversation via email back and forth, just, you know, like, hey, look, this record's coming out. What else is coming out? So forth and so on. So he would always answer the phone. And he was always like, Big Apple Records, home of the beats. This is Hatcher. You know, he's got that voice. <laughs> that's him and I'm like yeah. yo what's that Pat? it's Joe he's like yo mate what's going on blood and, right and we just talk and I'm like yo what's, what's going on with that show lay what's going on with that horsepower number seven I was, yeah I'll hold it for you mate I'll hold it for you send it all in there I'll put it out right away for you mate right throw a couple extra stickers and whatnot in it it's all good so so again we had never met until that until they had there was a festival in Baltimore called the Starscape Music Festival and it happened it was June 8 2002 I think I still have the flyer in that in my bin of flyers that I've collected over the past 22 years or so and I think everybody has one of these bins where you just have flyers or newspaper clippings and you, you just collect them all and there's a lot of them there so I remember it and the lineup it was Zed Bias Emma Feline a local DJ garage DJ named Oron um, Zed Bias Jada Flex Oris Hatcha and I remember Hatch was like, yeah, we're coming to the States, coming to the States, let's meet up. So we ended up hanging out for a little bit. And I remember being in the crowd when, when all the DJs played, it was like, yo, what's going on? And this is right around the time when Zed Bias had just, which had just finished making the Mad Slinky album. Right. That wasn't so even we're out like, yet. So we're like 2003, is that about right? 2002, we're, we're talking summer of 02 at this point. Got it. Because the Mad Got Slinky it. album didn't come out till much later. It was That was like an 03 thing, I think. So Hatch, so, so Hatch, I remember Hatch was telling me about this. He was like, bro, uh, there are these two young kids, these 14 and 15 year old kids that are making some amazing stuff right now. I'm like, who are they? It's like a young blooder named Scream and another dude named Banga. And I'm like, <laughs> what? And this is right around the time when Big Apple number one and two had just come out, right? I mean, one was the Artwork Red release. Two was the Banger release with Skank and Dose. It was the blue vinyl. And then three was, um, was the Banger and Scream release, the Scream tune called, oh, it was Scream and Banger, The Judgment, the Scream tune called The Bug, and the Banger tune called Amber. And I'm like... What? How are these young kids making this stuff? Yeah. So, this is—they're they're fourteen, fifteen years old, just making these. They're making stuff. I'm like, how do you make a bass do that? What the hell? No way. <laughs> yeah. So, so the next night they all played again at this club in Baltimore called Sonar. They were all, and I swear there must have been twenty people in the club. Of the twenty people in the club. Seven of them were the DJs that came over from the UK. It was <laughs> yeah. me, um, my friend Justin, otherwise known as MC Twisty. That's where we met. And then that's a whole that's a whole other podcast, quite honestly. And then a few other people. And then, yeah, then ever since then, me and Hatch always stayed connected. Um, and then word got around that I was the guy to get tunes to on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. I was the guy. So then I, right around that time, I just moved in with my old roommate, Tyler. And then we decided to start an online radio station called Gourmet Beats Radio. And we were just doing it off 
the Windows Media Real Player and we were setting up remote. Ser- it was just, it was a nightmare to try to set all this stuff up. So we started doing our own radio shows back in 2003. Yeah. So then one thing led to another. And then next thing you know, other people online were sending me their music over AOL Instant Messenger. So I was getting stuff from just about everybody. And then at that point, CDJs, I don't think were a thing back then. So cutting dub plates was. So where was I going to cut dub plates? So there was a place in California called Turnstile Records. Oscar was the guy who was cutting records back then. So I would go ahead and record CDs. And everybody had those big spindles of CDs back in the day. Everybody had those blank spindles. You get a blank spindle, you put it in a little CD case, send him the money order. And he was cutting dub plates back back then for me. Back, this, this is 03 now. How much did, uh, did a plate cost? $30. Yeah. For a 10, for a 10 inch. For a 10, 40 for a 12. Yeah. So everyone got 10s, right? <laughs> everyone was yeah, so every, everyone's buying 10s. Everyone's buying 10s. Exactly. You know, one tune on each side and that was it. So I'm spending hundreds of dollars a month cutting dubs. Because again, now word had gotten out that there's a guy in North, there's a guy in the United States and in North America that's cutting dubs and playing our music and putting it out there on radio. He's the guy, get him tunes. He's the guy. So next, one thing led to another. And then I went over, I came to the UK and I went to a forward night one night. And that's when I met everybody. I met Scream, I met Code Nine, um, just met everybody. Met Mala, just hung out with everybody that night. It was crazy. What year was what year was that? We we, we this is oh this is oh three now into oh three right yeah. This yep. is oh three yeah. This is oh three now. And then Jada Flex, at the time, had that radio show, the Underground Knowledge Radio Show, on on Wednesday nights on BBC One Extra. Yeah. On BBC, thank you very much. On BBC One Extra, which was a which was a big thing. If I can just jump in huge. here, um, yeah, of course, because it. One Extra itself was new. Like that, that was only launched as a radio station, I think in 2001 or two, I think it was probably 2001. But um, right. to have have a fairly prominent DJ on there who was, he definitely wasn't kind of booked as a dubstep DJ because dubstep didn't really exist as a thing so much, certainly not in the minds of a BBC executive. But obviously Jada was a, it was a resident of Forwards from from early on. He may have been, may even even been one of the first residents. But having him pushing it on on that new BBC station was just a big thing, a really big thing. And he's a great guy, like you said. Anyway, sorry. I'm oh, he's a lovely guy, lovely guy, lovely guy. And yeah, and it was a huge thing because it took it took that underground dubstep sound, and I'm going to be even more specific. It took that underground South London sound to other parts of the UK where other people weren't hearing it, playing it, listening to it, etc. Because I guarantee you in in Leeds or in Liverpool or in Bristol, they weren't playing old digital mystics records. It just just wasn't that it just wasn't happening there. At least from my my understanding. It was really a South London sound. Yeah, I mean it was. I mean there was like well, I think in the early the early part of the kind of development of it yeah there was absolutely the ground zero was 100% South London but then there was people like mm-hmm. like Casper who at the time was Quiet Storm who's a West London guy you know yep. stuff that we were doing I'm we're from North London yep. and there were sort of different bits and pieces going on um, but you're completely correct to say that South London was was the absolute kind of epicenter 
of it. And outside the UK, you know, you can't get pirate radio within, you know, <laughs> obviously it's a finite thing. And most of them weren't doing uh weren't doing live streams. There were a few internet radio stations back in that back in the day, but like, you know, not a lot. And it took, and frankly, as you mentioned before, it took a little while for the pirates to get involved. I mean, I remember, yes, get, I remember getting my Rinch show in two thousand and four. I think it was two thousand three mm-hmm. or four. And there was there was a very right. they obviously made a decision. Say, right, well, this is happening, so we need to get a bunch of the guys who are doing this, and we need to fill out the state, fill out the station, dro- drop a bunch of the guys who are playing UKG, and fill this fill the slots with some of these new dubstep guys. But, right. you know, it was so restricted. And as we were saying, like having someone on BBC playing it just opened it up, you know, even more. And I'm sure you're going to mention the dubstep forum, but that just widened the net even further, right? Yeah, it, it really honestly did. It really honestly did. And especially, again, with Jada being on BBC One Extra. I mean, it's one thing to hear <sighs> Lofa Horror Show being played by Code 9 on on kiss fm right it's another thing to hear it on bbc one extra or to hear koki officer on bbc one extra or to hear um all the stuff that rsj was doing off his texture records label or to hear um it it just just all of that or you know casper cockney thug right you know to hear you know hearing vexed on bbc one extra that's you, you see what i'm getting at or hearing old distance records from 03 and 04 back in the day it just that stuff it just it's one thing to hear it on pirate radio it's another thing to hear it there on bbc one extra yeah it lends it a bit of credibility right i was just going to say the word credibility right it kind of seems like a bit more of a serious thing but i mean actually it took a long time after this for it really to get anywhere but anyway sorry go on go on yeah that's all good yeah yeah so it's it's that sort of credibility just yeah just it didn't necessarily because it's because it's pirate radio pirate radio obviously lends itself to not being as credible as the quote-unquote bbc because it's pirate well it's credible in a different way isn't it you know it's that kind of grassroots underground credibility and i'm sure there were some people who were a bit like a bit sniffy about uh about the bbc getting involved right but yeah yeah i I mean because again the south i think for many of the people from south london i think many of them and quite honestly me because i've been involved in it so long we never expected this to be a global global phenomenon we never expected the sound to be in all these different places i mean hell when i first started djing if you had told me if i had told myself back in the day hey you know what joe you're gonna go play shows in 50 countries 20 years from now i'm like come on man what are you drinking how strong is that drink? What are you smoking? What are you talking about? There's no way. No, I mean, if that, I mean, back in those days, it, for me to get just just to play somewhere outside of Baltimore was like, well, I played Washington D.C. and Washington D.C. is 45 minutes down the road, you know. So, so the fact that I would have eventually played anywhere outside of Baltimore, Washington D.C. was just mind blowing for me. So the, the fact that a quarter century later, almost that it's a global sound is still kind of freaks me out a little bit, but I've gotten used to it the more I've traveled around the world. But yeah, none of us expected this sound to be 
to eventually go the way it's gone and become yeah. global and recognized. We never expected that. Because, Absolutely. Because I think so many of the people involved were just coming from other genres and other communities. And many of us, at least, for, at least in my opinion, felt somewhat disaffected by jungle and drum and bass and sure maybe those sound you know those genres are great but after a while they got kind of stale they got tired and we wanted something that kind of had elements of everything else but was distinct and individual to that particular culture and that's what dubstep really boiled itself down to yeah absolutely completely agree so i want to keep this on the the north american side though yes sir. so you've just been describing about how people were sending you tunes and you must have had an incredible selection back then. I have to say it was like, wow. Okay. But like to tell me how it, the graveyard is quite large, bro. The graveyard is crazy, bro. Trust me. <laughs> so, but so tell me how oh, it gradually began to develop over there because we've been on, we've been through on the show before, um, you know, the sort the, the story of the UK side of it, but like, I'm really interested in in your perspective on how your your shows developed and how the different you know cities started to get involved. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd be happy to. What what really happened? The when I met Jay, Jay get Jay was like, "Hey, look, come up to the um, BBC radio show, come sit in the studio, see what's going on." And this was right around the same time when I just started to do my own radio shows and. I, I didn't know anybody else in Baltimore doing radio, so I had no idea what was going on. I was like, I'm just playing records on a radio, on, on this little pi- small thing that me and my old roommate made, whatever, let's go. But then I saw how a professional radio station does it, and I'm like, okay, this is how it gets done. So then we, me and my old roommate, we started having local get- DJs come in and start playing. And then some of them started getting bookings in other cities and finding out about what me and my old roommate Tyler were doing. So the next thing you know, I, there was an, on the dubplate.net forum, there was a screen name, a guy named DQXT. The first two letters of that, four, those four letters should sound familiar, DQ, otherwise Dave Q. So Dave was in Brooklyn at the time, and Dave was starting, he had a blog, and then he was also playing a lot of UK garage and a lot of UK-based influenced music. So then I remember, go, I remember going up to New York City one time, and going to a show and Mark one and plastician were in the second room of this warehouse party in Williamsburg. And we're like, okay, this is awesome. This is great. This is cool. This is a vibe. And then a couple months later, some other DJs from the UK came over. I forget who it was, but they didn't play any dubstep. We were expecting dubstep and it was all house. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is, this isn't cool. What the hell? Where's the dubstep? Where's the bass? What's going on here? It's all just house. So then a few months later, Dave was like, yo, how about we start our own event? And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's go for it. So Dave was in Brooklyn at the time. I was living in Baltimore. And and, and for some reason, people always think that I grew up in New York City. I've never lived in New York City. I grew up in Baltimore. I always lived in Baltimore. I never grew up in New York. So I would always, so Dave and I decided to start this party called Dub War because in the name Dub War came from one of the horsepower tunes called Dub War. So the venue, first time we did a show was June 25th, 2005. And it was at a venue called Bar Sputnik in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn, New York. And the lineup was me, Dave and another good friend of mine from Baltimore, a reggae and dub DJ named John Ask. So John and I took the bus up to New York City. We played the show at 
this tiny bar called Bar Sputnik. It was a Russian bar. And the, the venue maybe had 30, 30 people there the entire night. And we were all like, yo, 30 people showed up. What the hell? This is awesome. <laughs> How the hell did 30 people know about this? We weren't like, man, only 30 people showed up. This is whack. What the hell are we doing? Why are we doing this? Nah, man. 30, we had 30 people show up and we were, you would have thought that 30 was 30,000. We were, we were so happy. It was unbelievable. It was an amazing night. And it was amazing because we didn't think anything was really going to happen, but it happened. So that night we had 30 people show up and that at that same night, there was a guy with dreads and he's from Trinidad. And I instantly knew he was from Trinidad because my parents are from Trinidad. And of course his name was John, his MC name, Juakali. So he was like, hey, let me get on the mic next time you guys have a show. So we're like, yeah, sure, no problem. Because we kind of felt that we needed somebody to get on the mic and kind of hold the, hold the show down. You know what I mean? Someone to host and toast. So we kind of needed that energy also. Somewhat similar to what ha- was happening in the UK around that same time. Because you listen to radio shows back then. Youngster had Task. Hatcher had Crazy D. So naturally, we kind of needed something in that sort of vein because so much of what we were doing was a direct reflection of what was happening over there because the first DMZ all nighter was March of 2005. And I remember being there that night. I was there that night. And so then three months later, we decided to start our own party dub war. And it was a few weeks before that, the Grime City crew in San Francisco started an event called Grime City, but their event was just entirely grime. It was all grime. There was no dubstep. Our event was, obviously we had, it was obviously mostly dubstep, and then we had dub and reggae in the beginning because that's what John played. So night, I'd say a month or so after that, we did another event. It was Dub War again, same venue, same lineup, me, Dave, and Dan G, who was also from Baltimore, and Dan and John would typically do shows rated together in Baltimore, and they were known as Down Tempo Sound System. And they were they were everybody's favorite DJs in Baltimore because they would play all the stuff that nobody else wanted to play, but they would play it, they would play it better than everybody. They had a they had they had massive record collections. I think Dan's record Dan's probably got a twenty thousand record collection. Dan's collection is ridiculous. John's John's reggae collection, I'll put up against just about anybody's. I mean, he's got, he's probably got a bedroom just full of just 45s. It's ridiculous how much music that guy has. So John came in and John was, Dan came up and Dan was more dubby house and techno rather than just straight reggae and roots. So Dan would play it and Dan was just, it, it, it was just a banging set and i'm just like wow this is awesome and then jewel collie gets on the mic so then right after that a guy who shows up bald-headed dude shows up and he introduces himself ken you know him as seckle he was taking photos and then he was taking pictures of the event and posting them on the dubstep form so then all of a sudden people started figuring out what there's an event in new york city there are guys playing dubstep in new york city and then people from other cities started seeing what was going on and then we're coming down to the event. I mean, back this back in the day, you could take the Chinatown bus from Boston. The, it was called the Feng Hua bus. And I'm serious. That's what it was called because I've taken it a bunch of times. <laughs> you would take the Feng Hua bus down I-95, drops you off at Canal Street in Chinatown, and you find your way over to Brooklyn. We had a pe- bunch of people from Boston coming down. 
bunch of them come, coming down. One of those people from Boston was a guy named Alex Bishop. You know him as Alex Inside. That name should sound Certainly familiar. do, yeah. <laughs> he worked for me for a few years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. What a guy. Exactly. So, yeah, love him. Miss him terribly. And so you see the connections to all, you see how the, all the pieces are starting to come together now, right? So we took the rest of that summer off and Dave and Code 9 had always been friends because Dave had done a lot of writing back in the day on different blogs and Code 9 and was in the process of writing his book, Sonic Warfare. So, so Dave ended up booking Code 9 for a show in September of 2005, and it was at a venue called Rothko. And this was one of these venues just off of Houston Street in the Lower East Side. So in that, that venue... This was not a 200-person venue. This was a 400-person venue. And we put the word out that Code 9 was coming out. Code 9 came out. We had 400 people in this room. It was packed. We couldn't fit anybody else in the room. Here's the wow. other part to all of this. And again, this, again, there's, there's layers to all of this. The first couple of flyers that were happening, Dave Q was doing them. And Dave was an adver- was doing at working as an at an advertising agency somewhere in New York, and the fly- let's just say the flyers weren't great, but they did the job. They were okay. They were okay flyers. So, but Dave was like, "Man, we got to figure out somebody to get these flyers cooked up the right way." So, one of the pe- one of the people in the gr- so I, f- I f- try to remember exactly how this all happened, but Dave ended up working with an advertising agency, and then one of the graphic designers was a woman from Paris who had moved there from London back to New York named Delphine. So, and she had understood the music and was listening to the sounds, etc. So next thing you know, we get Delphine to make the the Code 9 flyer. And then her artist name was, get ready for this, Ashes 57. <laughs> <laughs> you see how all these pieces are all starting to fit now. It, it's, it's crazy how this is all happening. So Delphine did the first, the, 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 that dub war flyer with Code 9. And people were just like, who the hell did this flyer? Who's this Ashes 57 person? This is crazy. What an unbelievable flyer. So... One thing led to another, and then we started just having Delphine do all of the dub war flyers. And these dub war flyers, if you look at them, they're works of art. And people would, I would, people would be like, "Yo, I still have that one with that flyer with dub the dub war flyer with you and the Bomb Squad and Hank Shockley." It was just like people were just like these flyers were incredible. They were just works of art. They, everybody loved the flyers, and then not only did they love the flyers, but they also loved the lineups. So we started getting publicity simply for being this dubstep party that had really good talent, a decent sound system at whatever venue we were having it at, and amazing flyers. So seeing that I already had a residency in Baltimore at the time and I was playing shows and I was traveling around a little bit here and there, especially going back and forth to New York City, people were like, other cities started having events. One of the first cities to start having events outside of New York City that had a dubstep event was Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Los Angeles had their first dubstep event back in 07, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, it wasn't 07. It was 06. It was 06. 
They had it in 06. And I remember playing some of those early dubstep events back in 06. And that was that was Smog, right? Was Smog the first one? I was just getting ready to say it was Smog Sessions. Absolutely. It was Smog Sessions. It was Drew. It was John, a.k.a. 12th Planet. They were putting on the parties back in the day. So Smog had their thing. Grime City started having a little bit more dubstep. Boston had their party. Uh, I forget the name of the, oh, it was um, I forget the name of the the party in Boston. I can't remember the name of it. Chicago had a couple of events. Um, in oh seven oh eight, Gritzy started getting going. So all of these different cities started popping up. And since I was the guy playing at the first, one of the residents and co-founders of the first dubstep party on this side of the Atlantic Ocean, next, obviously, I started traveling to all these cities playing shows. Next thing you know, I start making a name for myself as this guy. And then you got to remember back in 05, I had gone to the first DMZ All Nighter, but then I played the DMZ All Nighter in 05, in September of 05. I'd flown over there and I got invited. I got, you know, Mala was like, yo, you want to come play? I'm like, yeah, let me come play. So I opened up the night that night. So then now it's this guy, Joe Nice. He's played over here in the UK. He's playing all these shows around the United States. Canada started getting a couple of events. There was an event in Toronto. I got invited to play in Toronto, I think in 07 or 08. And then everything just kind of grew from there. Everything just kind of grew from there. It's it's yeah. Well, was, what was the point at which you really felt like it was popping? Was that like a single moment, or was it more of a kind of cumulative effect? That's a great question. I think when we really got when for dubs, I think there's two parts to that question. There's two answers to that question, and I'm going to answer them both ways. The in terms of dubstep as a genre, that tipping point or that point of no return where we crossed the Rubicon and we were no longer just a second room sound. We were the main event. We were the main entree was March of 2006, March of 2006. And that was the one year anniversary of the DMZ all nighter. And anybody that was there knows what happened that night. That was the night when, and again, crazily enough, I was the DJ that opened that night. And lucky me, I got a two-hour set. I played for two hours. Oh, man, I remember that now. I actually remember that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and it was becoming clear that, well, we're going to need a bigger space. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I'm getting at. We needed a bigger space. So I remember, I forget what, I was playing a pinch tune called Punisher. And that tune, everybody, I mean, that came out on Tectonic probably 10 years ago or so, maybe longer than that. And it was just an amazing tune. And I played it and got wheeled it up. People are just like, what the hell is this? Because no one else had it at the time. Then I played one of your tunes after it. It was a tune with the, it was a tune with the guitar in it. It was like the one that went, ding, 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 ding. I can't remember the name of it. My it's God. Called twist called Twister. Twist, thank you. Thank you. Look, I would have been here for the next half an hour trying to remember it, but I know it. I Because ha- you said, and I think you sent it to me, and you're like, yeah, only you and Hatch have this. I'm like, oh, yeah, shit. I, mean, I got to play this. I got I to gotta get this one in now. So I remember I played that. Then Blackdown sent me one of his tunes. Um, and he had just started to make make music back in those days because he was so busy doing the Blackdown blog. So he sent me one and I played one of his. And then I think I closed the night with um, Toasty Boy Knowledge, but it was the Vexed remix. Yeah. I think that was my last <laughs> tune of the night. So just before I went ahead and played that, 
Mark Mala taps me on the shoulder. He goes, bruv, just keep playing. I'm like, why? What's going on? He goes, bruv, there's a queue of 500 people around the building. I'm like, what? Bruv, just keep playing. Because you know, in Brixton, where the St. Matthew's Church is, the queue was going up and around, and it goes down by the one fence, then down by the... um by that statue all the way at the corner where Acre Lane is. And then I think there's the KFC across the street, which I think is still there now, if I'm not mistaken. And then there's these ha- there's a whole other residential area than a street with all these other restaurants. So the queue was going down by that statue. It went up the steps, up the one flight of steps, out down by the far side of the street, down past the statue, then back up the other side across the street where across the street where if you turn 180 degrees, you're looking at Electric Brixton, which is on the other side of the street. So it was a long ass line of people. He's like, just keep playing. So I played for another 10 minutes or so. Malik gets on the mic. He's like, bro, everybody, we got to move upstairs. There's a flight of stairs over here. We got to go upstairs. And then Youngster was, and you remember at that venue, Mass, the DJ booth was probably 30 feet in the air. You had to climb a ladder to get up it. You had to climb a ladder and it was way, way up. It was some bootleg ass ladder that was b- s- drilled into the wall. It was just a bunch of two by four vertical planks and a horizontal plank where you put your hands and your feet. And you had DJs walk climbing up this flight, of, this ladder with bags of dub plates, dub plates climbing up. I'm like, this is some G.I. Joe type shit we're doing here, man. What the hell is this? Yeah, completely, completely unsuitable for that music as well, you know, but, you know, it had to, had to be done. Oh, my God. Totally unsuitable. But it had to be done. So Youngster gets on. He does his thing. And then the rest of the night was the rest of the night. And I remember sitting there after I had done my set. After I was done myself for about 20 minutes after I was done. And I was just, just like, what the hell just happened? Because everybody would just kind of like, wow, awesome. This is so much fun. And that system downstairs at third base was amazing. It was that turbo sound rig. It was just so amazing. But nobody knew that. Nobody expected what we were going to be going upstairs to a bigger room. Nobody saw that coming. So I think in terms of dubstep, when we first started, well, at least for my opinion, from the genre standpoint, when it first started to become big was that night. For America, when I think it first started to become, when it was really popping, was when Dub War moved to Club Love in New York City. That's what I, yeah, and we did that, I want to so say, when, when was 08. that? When was that? Oh, it's right, 2008. Yep. yep. 2008. Yep. Yeah. When we got into Club Love at New York City, that's when, for me, that's when I think we really started to hit our stride. We really started to hit our stride. And it was just an amazing time being there. And the people there were just awesome. Um, Andrew and Zoe, you had Liz. The first sound guy was a dude named Ruben. The security staff was awesome. And the location was great too. It was right there at Washington Square across the street from NYU. It was easy to get to. So, and Cliff was one of the promoters who was part of Direct Drive NYC. So he was one of the promoters for a lot of the other events that were taking place. And there were three other parties that were taking place at Club Love on different weekends. So you had the Secret Night of Science party with DB and Dara. You had the Subswara party with Kush. Um, Juakali was a part of that. Um, Dave Sharma is a dear friend of mine. He lives in Houston now. He's a, he's a high school teacher teaching Ableton to a whole bunch of kids down there now. We, he and I talk once every other week or so. He's a good dude. Um, and then you had... 
Oh gosh, you had obviously us, Subswara. You had the other party with um, Drop the Lime. I forget the name of that party. Trouble and Bass. Trouble and Bass. Thank you. You had the Trouble and Bass party. And Trouble and Bass was always was the fourth weekend of the month. Dub War was always third weekend of the month. So we would always have the third Friday. So everybody that knew what we were about, we were third Friday. So at this point, we kind of had everything dialed in. Delphine was making the flyers. I would take the bus up to, from Baltimore to New York City, get on the 345 Bolt bus, get to New York around eight o'clock, whatever. Everybody kind of knew what was going on. Dave at that time, Dave was still living in Brooklyn. Jua, Jua was living in Brooklyn. Ken was living in Brooklyn. Alex was, had just moved to Queens. And then Alex became a resident of Dub War, Alex Inside. So Alex would always open. I would always be on at three o'clock in the morning. I was always last. So then everything, the rest of the lineup kind of filled itself out after that. And yeah, and then every, every month, then we moved from Fridays to Saturdays. And then every month, everybody knew what they were getting into. And it was just an amazing time. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And this is something that I've never shared with anybody else publicly, but I feel it's kind of worthy to talk about. I, I mean, there was a lot. We, we stopped in 2010. I think part of the reason why we stopped in 2010, because there was just so much going on in all of our lives, especially with me and Dave specifically. And Jua, obviously. I mean, I think from at the time, I, I know Jua was going through a divorce. Dave was going through his divorce. And I had just gotten married. <laughs> yeah. And all of that happened within about five or six months of, 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 of all of that. So we were, in May of, two, in, I think it was June of 2010, we were like, yo, let's just blow it out and just be done. Mala and scream. And that's what we did. And they were like, ah, we're kind of done with it. Really? Kind of done with it. Wow. But I guarantee... Yeah, that's what happened. That's 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 a big reason why we stopped. And I think the other reason why is because again, we were so much going on in all of our lives. You know, we we did our thing with the party, and there were so many other parties happening. There were other parties, dubstep parties in New York City happening around that time. So, you know, it was just it was just kind of the time to just say, ah, let's kind of just. We didn't even say let's slow down, let's take a break. We were just like, ah, we're kind of done with this, and that's what we did. We just we're done with it. I mean, if you but if, out, I think if we sorry, I mean, just to interrupt, but I mean, if you can go out on a high with someone like that, it's great, and it means that you can look you can look back on it and think, yeah, that was that was really something special. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's what we did. We did that. We did that. And now there was a and there was a part of me that was like, we have a good thing going. Why are we stopping this? Why in the world are we stopping now? Because. We had just gotten, our bar deal had gotten better, but then the other part to this was the bar ownership changed hands and there were certain things that were happening at the venue that weren't as cool as they were before. So it, you mix all of that in with everything that was happening with me, Dave and Joy in our personal lives at the time, it kind of made sense to shut it down at June. But I, I, if the bar didn't change ownership, if... Steve, the old guy, had stayed as the bar owner. I'm not necessarily sure we would have stopped in June. I don't think we would have stopped in June because we had no reason to stop. Everything was going great. We had every, it was, everything was moving like clockwork. We could have just, you know, we had everybody, we had a bunch of people that we were still looking to bring over. 
and we were and we were kind of pushing the envelope to who we were bringing in musically at the time nobody really knew rest in peace who ross g was at the time people had kind of heard of him but it was like who's this ross g guy we brought over ross g remember we brought over short stuff back in the day we brought over a bunch of people that people most of the times didn't necessarily know who they were but then after a few months later or so it was like oh shit okay yeah i've seen you yeah you were at the dub war party a few months back or we saw you here or we saw you there so it was actress was another one we brought over actress and wow, did you? i remember oh, when dave okay. yeah i remember when dave telling me Dave was like yo joe we're bringing over actress i'm like which actress who we bring it over we bring it over halle berry i mean who we bring it over sandra bullock <laughs> what are we talking about which actress I'm like no the dj actress i'm like who's that then i heard his stuff i was like yo actress is all right then he came in what took it down tore it apart yeah, yeah. tore it apart i remember we we, I, we brought over shackleton one time oh my goodness oh incredible incredible i mean the, to me that was still my favorite night i, I mean the code nine night was awesome too the, not not the first one but the time when he played did an hour live set and then played vinyl for two hours it was that was ridiculous he went from 12 to 3 and it was just him but yeah the night shackleton played i want to say it was i want to say it was october 2018 or 19 or something paul it was sonic voodoo i don't know what <laughs> happened that night but it was an hour and a half of it, it was it was sonic santeria it was just it came from another planet it didn't come from another country or another continent it was from it was some <laughs> metaphysical alchemy that just was represented in a sound on that gary stewart audio system at club love and i, I to this day i don't think i I've, I've heard anything that musically moved me as what shackleton did that night really wow. and i think for a lot of people yeah it was it was it was mind-blowing and i and again i i don't i haven't seen salmon forever and i miss him terribly he's a lovely guy um I don't know what he did that night or how he did it. And there's a part of me that doesn't want to know because I still want the mystery to remain fresh in my mind. So I'm just going to leave it alone. But yeah, that night was crazy. Hell, the night, the night you were there, the night your set was crazy. And then um, who else was there? Apple Blim was there that night. Yeah, we did a substance thing, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And what, what what was what was crazy about that night was that during yep. I think it was during Dave's set, uh, Jerry the Damager turned up and got on the mic. Bingo! That's <laughs> it. That's it. And yeah, because yeah, it, it, see, and see, you were there, so you kind of know what was going on. But I remember getting, I remember Dave showing me the text messages from Cliff because Cliff was the guy with direct drive, and Cliff and Jeru's real name is Kendrick, who would hang it out, and. He gets, and I remember there's, all right, let me tell you that story. Let me tell you that story. <laughs> so I remember I, I was living in Baltimore at the time and I had taken the bus up to New York and I had gotten to New York a bit earlier than normal. I typically, I would take the 245, the 345 bolt bus, but I ended up taking the 245 because the 345 was all booked up. So typically I would just meet Dave at the venue or I'd go to his place, hang out and then go over. The, for some reason, the 245 bolt bus got me to New York at about 6.15, 6.30. 
So I was like, yo, Dave, I'm in, I'm in New York early. He's like, yo, it's come on over to the, the house. So came out of his spot over in Brooklyn and we'd always order soul food from the same place and, you know, get these, this, it's a, a drink called the back porch iced tea. I remember drinking that back porch iced tea and Dave is a nineties fan, a huge fan of nineties hip hop. So that, he had this little UDG sling bag and, and the back part of it was just old hip hop from back in the day. So he brought a bunch of hip hop from back in the day and he'd always have it in his bag just to have it. No reason why you ask Dave any venue we've ever played together. He always had about 10 to 15 old hip hop, 90s hip hop records in the back of the bag. He always had it with him. So he packed some hip hop with him that night. So we ate our food. Got, I jumped in the shower, changed clothes. We went, caught a cab, got over to the venue, sound checked. And this is the thing when we played dub war back in those days. And if you showed up early, and I mean early, not 9.30, 9.45 to get in the door for 10 o'clock. No, I'm talking if you were there at 8.15, 8.20, and you were there when we walked in, you didn't pay the cover charge. Right. No, no. There were, there were all these, yeah, me and Dave had all these unwritten rules with Dub War that we didn't tell anybody, but if you figured it out, then fine, we let you in. But yeah, if you showed up at 8.30, for a 10 o'clock show and you're in line and we're, you're walking, you're in, you're waiting to get in. We just let you in. And it, the best part of dub war back in those days, it wasn't even the shows. It was the sound checks. The sound checks were the most fun because that's where we could all let loose, get crazy. All of us were hanging out in the booth all at the same time and just, just, just bullshitting and just having so much fun. The sound checks weren't worth the price of admission a lot of the times because we all had new stuff we wanted to play, but we didn't want to tell everybody that what we had, what was going on. So we kind of kept some things secret. So we tease a little thing here and there, play it on the system, you know, shut it off, put it back in the bag for anyone else could see what was going on. And then we kind of go about our business and hang out. So, so the night, um, so the night J came over, came in, um, I think, Dave was playing. Dave was playing at his set at the time. I think it's what was happening. And Jua taps. Jua, Dave's just like, yo, Jeru the damage is here. I was like, what? No way. <laughs> and 30 seconds later, he turns around. I'm like, yo, there's Jeru. What the hell? And then Jua's on the mic. So Dave starts reaching to his bag. And Jeru was signed to the Payday Records label back in those days. And of course, Dave, being a fan of 90s hip hop, had all of this stuff from Payday, Group Home, um, Black Moon. He had all these old hip hop records in the bag. So it just so happens J. Rue's there. Dave's playing all of J. Rue's tracks that he just happened to have in the bag. <sighs> There's video of this. If you dig it up, just dub war J. Rue the Damager. There's video of this. And Seckle was filming it all. And I'm just like, what in the world's going on here? What's, ha- what's really happening here? And the crowd, this crowd that's waiting for dubstep, they see J. Rue get on the mic and J. Rue's going in, <laughs> yeah, digging right. up all the whole classics, Come Clean, The Wrath of Math. And it's just like, really? This is what's going on? And the crowd's going crazy. J. Rue's like, dirty, 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 dirty. Crowd's going crazy. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, gosh. I know I'm sounding like the old guy now because part of it is because I'm an older guy. But, but again, if you were there that night, it's one thing to see it on YouTube now, 12, 13 years later. It's another thing to actually be there and experience it. 
Oh, man. Oh, gosh. Yeah, such a fun time. Such a fun time. There was another night where Flying Lotus showed up. Flying Lotus just showed up out of nowhere. He played a 45-minute set. Yeah, it was... Yeah, we there's a, there's there's a lot of stories that we could tell. I mean, I would love to have where where me and Dave and Joe and you know Ken and Alex would just sit down and just talk about some of the stuff that we did back in those days. And yeah, it, yeah, there would be a lot to discuss, a whole lot. Absolutely. Yeah. So so we're in 2010, and as you mentioned, so double gets wound up. Yep. Um, but dubstep is huge in the u.s at that point it's Um, growing yeah it definitely was a big thing in multiple cities and so you've got a you know you've got a career basically you know you're traveling you know outside internationally as well obviously but in the u.s there's and north america there's tons of stuff going on now (laughs) obviously there's a kind of elephant in the room here or or certainly something an, an elephant coming over the horizon should we say Yep. which is the bro, the, the bro step elephant yep which of course we we touched upon at the top so tell me about your experience of how that thing played out and how it affect how 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 you viewed it. i mean you told us a bit already about how you viewed it but like tell me about it emerging and how it affected you because it must have affected your career like you know i, I presume because it affected the whole thing oh, right yeah it absolutely did. Sure. So tell me about it. Uh, I mean, what, what ended up happening is you had this, you had this diff, completely different genre of music that was misrepresented by what dubstep was, or and quite frankly now is. So you had, and again, you had a bunch of artists. You had Excision, Downlink, to a certain extent, Twelfth Planet. Um, obviously Skrillex, they made this genre of music. They had these different, completely different sound that sounded like nothing that I was hearing at Club Love or at Plastic People or at Fabric every once in a while or at the Black Sheep Bar in Croydon or some of the other places around. So let me let me interrupt you there for a sec because yeah. um, it didn't completely come out of nowhere because, I mean, stuff like... You know, Casper and Roscoe are the obvious ones to 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 the obvious kind of dots to join, right? To that to that kind of stuff, and also some of kind of Koki's harder stuff. But but you're absolutely right to say that it is a different genre of music, right? Yeah. But you can kind of see where it came from. Fair comment. Uh, you know what? Yes, yes, I agree with that. But I think, in fairness, when you listened to, for example, Koki or Roscoe or Casper's stuff, there was still dub element with their bass lines you can still sort of feel that with a lot of their stuff i mean if you listen to rusco jehovah sure there there there, it's there's an obvious case to be made that yeah it sort of sounds like bro step but if you listen to the that bass line that's straight from a roots record i forget the name of the roots record but you could tell there's an obvious connection to dub and dubstep when Ruska was making that stuff. If you listen to a lot of Koki stuff, sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's, you can make an argument that is quote unquote bro steppy, but there's still the weight of his bass lines underneath of it that holds the tune together. But when you listen to bro step, it doesn't have that sort of baseline that 40 Hertz, 30 Hertz and below 
deeps yeah, it, that's it's kind of like connecting it's a, it. It's a vibe thing as well, isn't it? I think because it's like it's just much more. I don't know. It just doesn't have that funk to it. It's more mid range. It's just done that kind of like yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a kind of sonic thing, but I mean, kind of like more like just in the feel of the music. You know, yes. it doesn't have mm-hmm. that kind of like you know you don't move your shoulders to it you know you don't kind of like it's not something you kind of groove to which you're right to say that even like you know certainly even even Koki's really hard stuff it's still got that kind of slight little swing to it you know that kind of makes you move and and for me like the bro step stuff just lost that entirely it's exactly right yeah there wasn't it lost its musicality because you remember earlier about 45 minutes ago I said hey you know I like music with my music but for me the bro step it was it, it was music but it wasn't musical, if that makes any sense. It didn't. It felt. It felt like this amalgamation of sounds, but there. But there wasn't any cohesion with anything that was happening, and as a result, you ended up with. But wasn't. <laughs> what I'm going to say is going to make so much sense. With dubstep, you could dance to it, but at the same time, you could nod your head to it. Because again, there was that groove in it. There was that musicality to it. With Bro Step, you couldn't do that. So as a result, the people that would go to Bro Step shows, they were having mosh pits on the dance floor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the reason why you could have a mosh pit at a Bro Step show is because the music lent itself to move your body in that direction. As opposed to dubstep, the mu- dubstep didn't lend yourself to throwing a forearm and swinging your elbows wildly and hoping you didn't connect with somebody's jaw. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it, it was, it was, it was, it just, it just was a different energy altogether. And the energy of dubstep. And again, I, it was, it was, it was release and restraint. You see what I'm saying? With the energy of bro step was aggression. And with aggression, you, 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 your body tells you, your body lent itself to mosh pits and headbanging. With dubstep, it was toe tap, dance a little bit, head nod. Completely different vibe and energy. And as a result, they wanted DJs that played more of that stuff and then less of what we were doing years ago. You see what I'm saying? So, yep. At times, the the bro step thing, and again, I had a feeling it wasn't going to last because you're not going to be able to keep up that sort of aggression all the time. Eventually, shit, eventually you stop being angry. <laughs> you know? Eventually you stop being angry. And then you're going to have actually eventually come back to something that that feeds your soul musically. You know what's really interesting about that, right? Um, yeah. Last week on the show, I had Chris, who was one of the founders of Hospital Records. Yes. And he was talking about uh, drum and bass and how the drum and bass crowd evolves over time and how their core audience has always been 18 to 22 and it just stays there. And people, when they get to 22, a lot of them just leave and go and do something else. But there's always this conveyor belt of 18-year-olds who who are coming in and and kind of replenishing right and <laughs> like the the the, yeah, the core drum and bass audience, and so when you say people stop getting angry, like they do, but they just go off and do something else. But if you've got that, you know, if you've got that supply 
of angry kids, <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't go away. It just keeps going, right? Yeah, it just keeps recycling itself. It keeps recycling, and then. Yeah, and, and again, I don't know much about drum and bass because, again, I didn't grow up listening to it, and I really haven't paid attention or, nor followed the history of drum and bass. I, I just hasn't really been my thing because I've been so invested in dubstep for the for basically half my life at this point. But yeah, it, it, you're right. There, there at drum and bass shows, you don't see at least from my for what. And again, I haven't been to any drum and bass shows recently, but from what I've seen from Instagram accounts with that catered drum and bass or etc. You don't see a whole lot of forty-three-year-old people going to drum and bass shows, right? At least people in the crowds. You might you might have a couple of forty-three-year-old drum and bass DJs that are still playing. Because, probably quite a few of those actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, probably a bunch of them. Now I think about it, you're right. <laughs> Hell, there's there's a bunch of late thirties or early forties dubstep DJs still playing because absolutely. You know, you're talking to one right now. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm I'm, I'm mid forties now, so yeah. Right. <laughs> so we're still we're still at it, and and it's and and it feels good to have that sort of longevity, especially especially for somebody like me that I just started learning how to make music about a year ago. I never had a never I never touched music software until a year ago, and knowing what I know now, I would have I would have definitely learned how to make music. 15 years ago if i yeah if i if i if the old if 46 year old joe had talked had lunch with 29 year old joe 46 year old joe would have said yo you learned reason or fruity loops do something with that learn it now please because you never know what you can eventually become if you'd start having this knowledge base of music production now because you know, and I get it. I understand the 10,000 hour rule. It takes time to become proficient at this. So it would have taken me a few years. Well, I of, mean, it didn't, didn't take screen 10,000 hours, did it? <laughs> you know what? It, you know what? I would, I would beg to differ. It probably did. But his 10,000 hours probably started at a much younger age. Right, right, right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure, there's, sure, a, sure. there's a, if, you've, if you read the um, Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers, it talks about how, how people become who they become. And it's, you know, there's a part about the Beatles, how they became the Beatles. They were playing shows at a young age and they were playing five or six days a week all the time, all the time, all the time. Talks about how Bill Gates became this computer whiz and his old childhood friend, Steve Ballmer. Well, when a lot of kids back in those days were shooting basketball, playing basketball and, or flying kites, you know, Bill Gates, mom, I think was a professor at University of Washington, and they had access to the computer lab when they were little kids. So they were learning how to program as 15 and 16 year olds, while most other kids were learning how to do BMX bike tricks back in those days. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy how how many musicians you talk to and who you, you know you read interviews with, and it's incredible how many of them say, "Oh, when I was like a baby, my mum was playing." soul records or whatever you know just yep. being around that music from an early age like it's it can really have such a huge eff effect on a kid you know because that's just you know where that's where you know that's that's when your brain is the most receptive right and it really makes a huge exactly difference. it does make a huge difference i mean you you you, you you see this a lot. No, sorry about that. You see this a lot with in athletics. You see a lot. A lot of this in athletics, where you see a lot of, especially 
in football, you see a lot of second generation footballers that usually end up being better than their parents because the second generation footballers grew up around the sport. They grew up in that environment. They grew up yeah. with their, with their most instances, their father being in a particular locker room and their son being there by their side. I, I'm hell. thinking about thinking about Erling Holland, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know what? He's an excellent example because his dad, his dad could play. His dad was a decent ball player, but his dad wasn't Erling. Erling, that guy's a cyborg. My <laughs> God, I mean, I'm, 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 I remember vivid. I remember bits and pieces of Martin Odegaard's father, who was a former professional football player. Look at Martin Odegaard now. I mean, he's probably, he's probably Arsenal's best player. I think he'll be the captain this this year. He, yeah. pro- he probably will be the captain this year. Yeah, yes. I mean, you see that a lot. I mean. You, mm. You're seeing a lot with you're seeing that a lot with footballers. You see it with you're seeing it a lot. I mean, hell, Steph Curry, Steph Curry. I mean, you look at what he's done over the, his career. I, I remember his dad. I'm old enough to remember when his dad was playing with the Charlotte Hornets for all those years, and his dad could his dad could shoot the ball. Dell could shoot the ball, but he wasn't shooting like Steph. I remember Clay Thompson's dad, Michael Thompson, with the Showtime Lakers. Michael Thompson was hell. He was the, Michael Thompson was the first pick in the draft, I think, in nineteen seventy eight or nineteen seventy. No, nineteen eighty or eighty one or something. Michael Thompson was a good ball player. He wasn't shooting the ball like Clay was. No. <laughs> so I mean, you're seeing this sort of growing up in these particular. And again, we're products of our environments. So if you grew up in that environment and you take an particular affinity and have a certain aptitude to that skill set or that endeavor, it stands to reason that you'll eventually become not only proficient, but excellent in whatever you're doing. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Okay, so I want to get back on bro step. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, um, as sad as it is. So you were, you were telling me about how it affected your career. That's, that's what I want to know about. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> the show's dried up. Really? I wasn't playing nearly as many shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't playing nearly as many shows as I was back in those days. Plus, a lot of the a lot of the events that were taking place. I mean, we had stopped doing double war right around that time. There wasn't any other major events in New York City. The a lot of the stuff that was taking place around Baltimore had stopped going on. DC had started really catering more towards dubstep. I'm sorry, more towards bro step rather than dubstep. So I wasn't playing any of those shows around. So I I, I just wasn't. Pl- I, mean, I was still playing shows here and there, but in terms of me flying around. You know, I guess back in those days, there still wasn't that many shows to play anyway. But I mean, it's crazy how big it got so quickly. I mean, I remember just like, like it. seeing it happen, and you know, it just it, it took off. And then, but those guys are suddenly playing arena shows. Forget about club shows. It's like these enormous yeah. corporate venues. This is what Nicole was explaining to me about how. Well, she explained to us to all of us on on the pod. Um, about how the kind of booking system works at US venues and how there are, you know, venues in every city that are run by Live Nation, all the rest of it, and how those companies just jumped all over that bro step sound and just essentially sucked the life out of this dubstep scene, which has, you know, built up over a number of years, basically, is what she was saying. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. It went, it almost didn't even seem like they were playing, like they went from clubs to stadiums there wasn't even a transition from clubs to bigger clubs to st- large arenas 
that'll hold maybe 2,000, 3,000 people. They went from 200 to 20,000 in the matter of 18 months. And I'm like, what? How this, uh, what's going on here? How is, and then it was, then then you had entire tours of these DJs playing these festivals and playing these large venues, these stadiums, playing in front of 50 and 60,000 people. And I'm scratching my head. I'm like, wait a minute. Why the hell didn't this happen for dubstep? What? what? I mean, sure. I mean, even in those days, Outlook Festival didn't happen until uh, right like for 2011, 12, maybe like 9, 10-ish. So even with Outlook Festival, we weren't, they weren't drawing 20,000 people at the festival all at one time. So let me, let me give you my hypothesis, which just came to me. Yeah, sure. Like as big as dubstep got in the US, there wasn't really a, a North American dubstep star. If you see what I mean, I agree with like, that. There was, I mean, there were there were there were really successful DJs, you know, uh, like uh, such as yourself, but there wasn't anyone who really broke through and kind of dominated in the way that, for example, Excision or more more, more pertinently, Skrillex eventually did. I agree with that. Yeah, and I think that that kind of I think it seemed to me that like it it all it all bubbled up and it, and you know, people were big, but when Skrillex arrived, it just went fucking supernova, right? And I think it was a lot to do with just him as an individual, and there were a couple more as well, like you know, as I said, Excision and, and what have you. But maybe, yeah, tell me what you think about that thing that just came into my head. <laughs> you know what? You bring up a good point. That is a good point. There wasn't the yeah. I, <sighs> Hmm. How can I say this? I was known, but I wasn't a star, you know, and I I don't, and I don't necessarily have a problem saying that I, I wasn't, I wouldn't even say that I was a necessary, I mean, dubstep at that point was still a relatively small pond, Mm. but I wouldn't necessarily say that I was even a big fish in a small pond. I would probably say I was a medium sized fish in a small pond. Part of that is because I was, I was living in the United States. I wasn't from the UK. I wasn't in living in the UK when that time, when that song, when the music was being made, even though I was born in the UK, I wasn't living there. And, you know, and plus I wasn't making my own music at the time. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I was known, but I wouldn't necessarily say I was even a star at that point, even though I played a bunch of shows in a bunch of cities and I now started to travel and play some shows here and there internationally. But you're right. There wasn't a person that you could look at and say, Yep, that person is dubstep on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. That's the guy or that's the girl. You couldn't Yeah, you're right. Yeah, for that for that for that younger generation to kind of really kind of identify with, I guess, right? I uh, yes, I, I I yes, I thoroughly agree with that. And and I think so much of that is not only that person, but the person also has to have a particular look about them sure. where the consumer base can identify with the person that they're quote unquote idolizing absolutely, or, 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 or they're at least willing to follow. So, and, and again, I don't mind saying this, but I'll, I think it needs to be said. If you're a suburban kid that's fi- just found bro step, who are you going to follow? The short white guy with half a shaved head or the bald black guy from Baltimore, Maryland? <laughs> yeah. And Take your pick. 
that's that's hinting at uh, an area that we're gonna we're definitely gonna talk about in a minute. But um, <laughs> just uh, let's just keep on um, like the development of because I'm so, I'm super I mean, interested. It, 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 it's true. I know. I have to. I completely agree with you. And I want to have a. I'm itching to get into a political discussion because it's super interesting to me. But let's just finish off dubstep yeah. first. Yes, sir. So, okay. So this bro thing becomes enormous. And the kind of EDM thing is happening at the same time. And it's almost like two yes. sides of one coin, right? So it's like yes. um, this huge, huge shows, it's all production. And it's like, you know, this super impactful music, this weird kind of like, sort of like bastardized, bastardized version of like real dance music, basically, basically on either, either side of that yes. coin. Right? That's how I saw it anyway. Um, yes. And then, and so how did it, I mean, we we talked a little bit um, earlier on about how it shook out, but like, tell me, could, could bring me out of that kind of like absolute peak into more like where where we are now. <sighs> wow, wow! You know, at, at, at its peak, it at least in my opinion was unbearable. It was not only <laughs> yeah, unbearable, it, you know, it was unbearable not only because I wasn't playing as many shows as I had wanted to, but it was also unbearable because it seemed as if two points, one, I didn't like the music. I thought it was a, it was completely bastardized from, from a British culture whose roots were connected to dubbing reggae, which is Jamaican culture, black culture, etc. So that's, and that's a whole other discussion. But the other part of it is I just felt as if the meritocracy had been completely eroded. The meritocracy was gone because you had a bunch of people that for many of us in the dubstep community had never heard of. And all of a sudden they're making twenty-five, dollars $30,000 a show and they're playing in front of 50,000 people and they're doing, they're playing these kind of shows 80 to a hundred times a year. And it's just like, well, what the hell's going on here? How did you guys get these opportunities? And where's the sweat equity? Where's the graft? Where's the blood, sweat, and tears? Where's, Where's the, oh, I'm the opening DJ for this night, and my compensation is $50 and a couple of drink tickets and maybe a plus one or two on the guest list. Where's that? Working from, you know, not that I ever want to quote Drake, but where's the starting from the bottom now you're here? Where is that? Where, what the hell's going on? Where's the meritocracy? Where's the earning your stripes? And I just feel like a lot of the people who are involved in that bro step environment back in those days, I just feel like they didn't earn it. I felt like success was just bestowed upon them because they were, quote, I guess a chosen or selected few based upon promoters and talent buyers. And that's pretty much exactly what Nicole said. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, well, why, why do you get to do this? I mean, again, I have no problem with anybody putting their time in working hard and enjoying the fruits of their labor. But I just, I just feel like many of them didn't work for it. If, they, if, if, if I felt as if they had grafted and spent their time and did what they needed to do to get to where they were back in those days, I probably wouldn't be as 
maybe I don't know if upset is the word, but I'll use upset for the purposes of this conversation. I don't feel I w- it would have bothered me as much, but the fact that it was not only whack music, but then they came out of no, they seemingly came out of nowhere to these heights of superstardom. It was just, no, it, I just felt it was undeserved. Yeah. And I completely agree and felt the same way at the time, <laughs> basically. Yeah. I was like, um, what are you doing? How'd you get this opportunity? But, but it definitely it has subsided a bit, right? So what 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 Nicole I agree. What, what Nicole was kind of saying was that basically you've got the 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 super successful guys out of that kind of cohort have now kind of transcended it and are now just sort of brands in of themselves. So they do their do their you know big tours and like obviously Skrillex is you know yeah I've yeah. In fairness to Skrillex, like he's done a lot of quite interesting stuff musically, I think. So fair play to him. But generally right. speaking, it's 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 transcended quote unquote bro step in in most in most cases, right? And splintered off into these you know, the aforementioned subgenres, which I have no understanding of at all. But as we were saying at the start, like I, I kind of you know, pretty decent grassroots dubstep scene has re-emerged. So, I mean, did that, did it, when I say re-emerge, like, am I right in putting it like that? Did it completely go in, has come back a bit, or was it always kind of there? I think it was always kind of there, but it was overshadowed by the, how massive Brostep got. Brostep, Brostep eclipsed dubstep. And I don't, and I, and I'm, and I don't use that word eclipsed lightly. And I mean, in the most literal senses of the word, it eclipsed dubstep. When you have an eclipse, it kind of just covers over everything, even though what is there is still there. You just can't see it. Dubstep was dub, dubstep as we understand it never truly went away. It's just bro step was so massive and it just engulfed everything that was happening at 140 beats per minute especially in north america and and again in europe i don't think bro step really ever took off in the uk especially but i don't think it really did anything not to that extent yeah nowhere near not to that extent in europe yeah and 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 i think there's a big reason and and, sure some of these guys might have played some shows overseas here and there but it's not as if they were playing for example outlook festival or dimensions festival and getting booked or playing some of these other clubs around europe and being asked to play bro step you see what i'm saying it, it seemed to be mostly a canada united states thing where a lot of these big bro step djs seem to have made a name for themselves yeah i mean that's where they could sell the tickets right <clears throat> exactly yeah that's where their bread got buttered sure of course but I don't think some of these bro step DJs were going to the oil club in Shenzhen, China back, back in those, well, they didn't exist back then, but you see what I'm saying? They weren't touring around China and playing bro step. I just don't think that was happening or at least I didn't see it. Yeah. And they certainly weren't going to mass in Brixton or, or fabric or ministry of sound and playing a lot of the, uh, and having a group of them play over there. That just wasn't, no, just wasn't going on like that. Yeah, totally. So tell, yeah. So just tell me about that, the reemergence of that, the kind of dubstep scene as it is the, the, the proper dubstep scene, you know, as it is now. So, so as you mentioned, it's, it was always there, but I mean, do you feel pretty good about the way it is now? Do you feel like there's some, some potential for it to, 
develop? Yes, I do feel this. But yes, to both parts of your question, I think yes, it's it's in a good place, and I yes, I do think it's it, there's still room for development, and it kind of alludes to what I said, I guess maybe about almost two hours ago when we started talking is. I feel there's so much more that could be done at 140 beats per minute. I mean, you said almost an hour and a half ago that, that you played house and techno for so long. And I feel there's a lot of that that could be added to dubstep now that isn't being heard now. Quite honestly, the, the, the freshest stuff that I heard that I've heard at 140 beats per minute was quite honestly, a lot of the stuff that Hessel audio was doing back in the day. I love that stuff. I wish that stuff would come back more now because it's that sort of musicality that I enjoyed. I mean, those, some of those old Ramadan man tunes were just nuts. Are you kidding him? Joe, um, some of the stuff that Hemlock records was making, I mean, untold, my God, God, the stuff he was putting out back in the day, I wish we had that sort of energy now coming back to 140 beats per minute. I wish we had more of that because that stuff was just everything that was coming out back in those days. Some of the stuff that Addison Groove was doing back around that time, that stuff was so fresh. It was so fresh and so innovative and it was so exciting and it was also so musical, even though it didn't necessarily sound like a banga, scream, mala Koki, um, Vivek, Gothtrad tune, but you could still see and feel the connection to bass music at 140 beats per minute. You could still feel that dubstep connection to it. And it felt right. It just felt like it belonged. It felt like it was a part of something. And I wish we had more of that now. I wish we had more of a 4-4 house influence at in at 140 beats per minute. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what I'm trying to figure out right now as I begin my musical education with Ableton is to try to figure out how to make this sort of house influenced music at 140 beats per minute, but not have it dumbed down or homogenized to the point where people just say, Oh, well, all you did was speed up a house tune at 140 beats per minute. (laughs) Well, no, it's not that I don't want it to be that, but I want it to feel like that, but I don't want it to be that. And unlocking that, unlocking that door, is what I'm trying to do right now because once I figure that out because that's that I know what I want my stuff to sound like I just need to keep working at it so I'll eventually get there because once I've figured that out that's where I want to go with the music because I feel that there's hardly any of that happening right now a lot of what I'm hearing right now is how how loud can you make your basses sound how does does your snare slap at a particular frequency um you know how how angry and how dread and how scary and how sound designy can you make all of your synths yeah it's the engineering arms race right yeah yeah and, and you know you and it becomes paralysis by analysis you end up becoming so technically proficient at what you do that you forget that this is music and there's an artistic side to all of this. There's an art to all of this. You know, sure, I understand that there is a, there's a cerebral lateralization in the music making process where there's a left brain and right brain. Well, yeah, you have to be technically proficient to make it, but you also have to have some artistic. But I feel like there's so much 
dubstep is becoming considerably more left brain rather than right brain, as opposed to when it was 15 to 20 years ago, where dubstep was a lot of right brain. And sure, you had some left brain, but you didn't have, it wasn't so super sound designy that it took away from the musicality of the music. Now I'm feeling like there's so much sound design in dubstep right now that it's losing its feel. It's losing its musicianship. And I want to get back to the musicianship aspect of it, you know, and I don't mind saying this, not every tune has to be deep, dark, and dangerous. You see what I'm saying? You right. can have some stuff that sounds fun and entertaining. And I think the music needs to go somewhat in that direction also. Okay, right. So we just talked about music for two hours, um, which is appropriate given what you do. But, oh, yeah. <laughs> but to be honest, like part of what a big part of what makes you such an interesting person to me is your involvement in politics and political activism. And we yeah. we just we touched upon it very briefly in our music yes. discussion. Um, and we also mentioned at the top that so much stuff has happened since the last time we met. So as a Brit and as a European, like looking from afar at how the how the how the stuff i don't know how to put this i was gonna say how the stuff has played out in, in in the us right right so i mean of course that we've had our own version of it and and clearly all of the issues that exist in the us exist in some form elsewhere but it's from looking at it from afar it is quite distinct the the experience of it in the us so Basically, my so my first, I have some some specific questions, and the first one is relating to music, which is that yep. I mean, do you think that it's important for a musician to be political? That's a great question. I think if it's in you to be political, if it's in you, it's just part of your personality. Then yes, you should be. You should be because I feel that there are so many people in the music industry that are just in the music industry, just about the music. And that's fine. But I feel that many people who are in the music industry take an opportunity to have a political stance because it's, it's expedient for him or her to do so because it will, it will sell more tickets or it will increase their social media standing or, or it will enhance their brand. And if you're being political for those reasons, then you shouldn't be political because you're not truly caring about the is the issue that you pur purport to be involved in or care about. But I feel is if if you care about something and you are truly in the issue or care about the issue because it, you have an affinity for it or it's affected you or affected somebody you know and or love or care about and you want to share your political viewpoints with the people who support you, then by all means, I feel you should do that. I feel you should do that because music has always been some form, has always been some form of revolution in some way or fashion. Not every song is a love song. There are plenty of songs that talk about revolution. There are songs that talk about war. There are songs about, that talk about economic disparity. There are songs that talk about religious conflict. So, and the people who have sung these songs and written these songs about these particular topics, yes, they've had to take their 
their bumps and bruises from fan bases that didn't appreciate their political stances. At the same time, there's a group of devoted fans that appreciate what those artists have stood for because they were willing to take a stand for something they believe in, whatever, and, and were willing to accept the costs of taking that particular stance. And I, I speaking about myself personally, I, I feel that there have been some instances where I've said some things and done some things, especially over the past 30 months or so, where some people are like, oh, you know what? Well, I'm not, I'm not really into Black Lives Matter. Or you know what? Yeah, you know what? I am a Trump supporter and Joe's not a Trump supporter. Let me, I'm not gonna follow him as closely as I used to. And and that's okay. And that's okay. Because I, I know there's plenty of, there are plenty of artists out here that just want to be followed for the art and just for the music or for the DJ, whatever it is. But for me, I don't necessarily think that's enough. Because I've always, far, I guess part of this is why I grew up, I've always been more invested in the person that makes the music rather than just the person's music. You see what I'm saying? I want to I know what goes into the soul craft of Prince and how he, how he did what he did in the 80s. What, why did Stevie Wonder make all of those amazing albums in the 70s? How did that happen? What went? What were the? What were the socioeconomic factors? And how did he grow up? And how did he become Stevie Wonder? Why did Jimi Hendrix become a guitar virtuoso at such a young age? How did that happen? That's for me. That's far more. In, that's equally as interesting as listening to "Loves in Need of Love" today, or anything that Prince did on the Sign of the Times album, or listening to. Jimi Hendrix play Purple Haze. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. And the answers to those questions have a socioeconomic element or are just socioeconomic questions, right? So that's a bingo. You're going to let down that path. Exactly. It's exactly it. It's exactly it. So, and, and I'll say, and I don't mind saying this because I think there's a big part of it. And my uncle, God rest his soul, he told me this years ago when I was my daughter's age, my daughter's 11. And he told me this year is when I, when I was her, when I was my daughter's age and I never understood it until a few years back. And now I understand it even more. Okay. My uncle Ansel, he said, Joe, white people have a job. Black people have a responsibility. And I never understood that quite. You know, even when I was in my mid thirties, I was like, ah, I don't really, I don't really get it said white people have a job black people have a responsibility when it goes back to the fact of artists being political i think if you are a black person in the music industry by default there has to be some sort of activism involved there has to be because there are so many people who are black who don't get an opportunity to have that platform to present their to to showcase their talents they don't get that opportunity hell i grew up in baltimore i came from a city where where about an hour and a half ago i talked about some of the baltimore club and house producers that came from my city that was i think that was the list Mm. that was the list there weren't many of us so the fact that I came from a city where there weren't many of us to eventually get out and travel around the world and do our thing, and I didn't come from a genre that Baltimore was known for. Baltimore wasn't known for dubstep. Baltimore was known for Baltimore Club and Soulful House. And the fact that I never made a tune and I was able to travel the world and do what I love doing, that's 
that's damn near miraculous. <laughs> so, so when so when I go out and I talk and I get an opportunity to talk about other stuff about that's not music related, that's stuff that's political, and. and I know there's people in Baltimore that would love to do what I'm doing, but never got the opportunity to do that. By default, I have to represent them. I have to speak up for them. I have to show up for them. I have to. That goes to my point. You know, white folks have a job. They can go ahead and play music. Cool. I just can't play music because I'm responsible for all the people that helped me get to where I am now. I stood on the shoulders of of all these other people to sure. help me to get to where I am today. And I have to, I, I would be doing them and myself a disservice if I didn't speak up for them and for myself. Okay. Yeah. I completely understand all of that. It makes total sense. So, the, so my question would then be like, to what extent do, to what extent does that responsibility extend to white people given, well, given, given the history? You know, that's a and you and you mentioned before like how performative some of this stuff yeah. is and how like how how transparent, quite frankly, a lot of the activism, I suppose, the activism of white people is. Sure. So, but how do you see that specific kind of like element of responsibility? Like, how how do you feel that it or does it at all like transplant over to to, to white musicians? I feel it does because, and especially, and and this is. And I'm glad you asked this question because in years past, I didn't necessarily think that white people necessarily had as much of a responsibility to be socially active because many white people benefited from the from privilege because simply because they're white people, white privilege. But now, especially since we've seen so many white people become nearly as disadvantaged, nearly as economically disadvantaged as black people. There are more white people that understand the a certain levels of economic disenfranchisement that black people have had to go, go through for quite honestly centuries. So there's more white people saying, look, you know, we need universal basic income. We need to, we, yes, American descendants of enslaved Africans should get reparations. Yes, First Nations communities in Canada should get reparations. Yes, we need Medicare for all. Yes, everybody should have student loan forgiveness. And what I'm also seeing more white people, especially white people in the music industry, they're not necessarily getting as getting as tied to political party as they are more connected to particular issues that they care about. So let's, I mean, we can spin this forward another direction. Take, for instance, what happened a couple of weeks ago with respect to the Supreme Court basically basically eliminating Roe versus Wade on the federal level and now leaving the woman's right to choose in each particular state's hands. And there are many states around the United States, most of them led by the Republican Party, that have decided to eliminate a woman's right to choose. And you're seeing now many artists taking standing for, hey, I'm 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 pro-choice. A woman should have a right to choose what he she does. She and I mean she, not just in the woman's sense, but again, there are trans men that can get pregnant. There are trans women who get pregnant. So I'm including them in this discussion also. That that have their right to have that have the right to choose. And you're seeing 
more people and and again i don't necessarily i don't I think more artists are getting away from, yep, I'm endorsing the Democratic Party because they support this, or I'm endorsing the Republican Party because they support this. I think people, artists are getting away from that, and they're supporting particular issues, and they're becoming more vocal about these particular issues because, quite honestly, censorship on social media has become considerably more rampant over the past 20 years, but really in the past couple of years since the pandemic, especially let me, let me, let me, let me not being able there. to talk about COVID, etc. Yeah, go ahead. Let me stop you there. That's a really interesting point. I want to stick a pin in that, but I have a question or a sort of observation about, about what you, uh, yes, sir. how you answered my previous question, which was, you know, you, you, you brought up the point about economic disadvantage in the white community, which is super interesting because, um, I mean, it's absolutely right. And I always, I always tend to think that, like you know, people who haven't got a lot of money have always have more in common with other people who haven't got a lot of money, regardless of their race, than rich people, regardless of their race. That's what I my, my instinct is always that, right? And I, I don't know what you think about that, but my observation was going to be when rich white musicians take a political stance. I don't think I've ever seen, because what you're talking about is kind of like a wider kind of solidarity in a kind of like socialist kind of a way. Yes. And I've, I hardly ever, or if ever, have seen a white musician take a stand, take a, take a public political stance in a way that kind of advocates that sort of universal solidarity. It's super rare to me. And when white people, when white musicians tend to do this, it's, it's much more of a, I'm sorry for being white kind of thing and that's how it's framed so it was just really interesting to me that you 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 uh you put it like that but anyway i mean i don't know what you think about that right and no no paul you bring up a good point and i want to make sure i'm crystal clear with what i'm going to say next no white person should never have to apologize for being white because that's no i mean you can't apologize for genetics life circumstances, etc. Okay? So that's the first thing. You should never have to apologize for being white, nor should I have to apologize for being black, which also goes to the point, the next point, how stupid racism actually is. There was a, I was listening to a Dr. Cornell West speech on YouTube a while back, and one of the people that introduced him was a I think a University of Oregon professor named Dr. David Lee, and I think he's a professor in the literature department. Mm, yeah. And I'm trying to remember the exact quote he said was, race is biological social irrelevance. No, it's bi- no, he said race is biological irrelevance with fatal social consequences. Right. Race is biological irrelevance with fatal social consequences. So as a result- That's exactly right. Yeah, race is, again, it's a made-up social construct to make- designed to divide people based upon pigmentation which again stupid but this is what this the, the what earth has become unfortunately so when you think about the socioeconomic when you bring about the class solidarity between poor white people and poor black people as opposed to rich black people and rich white people there still is a stratification between poor white people and poor black people as opposed to poor white people and i'm sorry rich white people and rich black people even though the poorest white person 
still ha- has more economic advantages than a middle class black person in the United States. There are plenty of studies to support this. There was, um, there was, gosh, Professor Sandy Darity, who wrote a magnificent book called From Here to Equality, and it talks about the case for reparations for American descendants of enslaved Africans. Him and a lawyer named Antonio Moore wrote an, uh, a report of about three or four years ago talking about the racial wealth gap. And he said that a white person with a high school diploma has more net worth than a black college graduate. Right. I mean, yeah. Okay. So, just, <laughs> go ahead. Um, sure, yeah. I'm. I've. I've got a. Well, I, okay. I don't, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds in this, but yeah, I think it's it's definitely fair to say that the level of deprivation across across kind of racial lines, and we as we just said, like the, this whole race thing, it's like it is a social construct. But like, I mean, a big part of the reason for the political turmoil in the US and it's not just true in the US it's true across all the western world but is uh, but particularly in the US I think is that that white people essentially who assumed that they were going to do better than their parents are not going to do better and often are extraordinarily economically deprived and I I'm I'm sure you're what what you we just referenced about about the relative opportunities and all that stuff, I'm I'm sure you're right in that. But it, it is just pretty crazy the the level of like as you said, wealth inequality and also income inequality, which which is true for everyone across racial lines. You know, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So, sorry, yeah. I, you were <laughs> no, no, no. Keep going. Okay. The the pin that I that I put in was regarding social media censorship, which is a really interesting a point in of itself actually because if we're talking about um political divides here this is something that both sides of the aisle even if it's not in congressional terms both sides of the argument should we say complain about a lot and with seemingly pretty good reason on both sides so tell me what what you were gonna uh what t- t- tell me um about why you brought that up and like what's your what what was your experience of it, and, and how you see how you see it? Well, some of the some of the topics that I've discussed, especially on Instagram, have been censored because I know I've been shadow banned. I know I've had my Instagram account, um, my reach has been terrible recently. But I know when I was really speaking out a lot, especially summer of 2020, there were plenty of people that weren't seeing my posts, plenty of people that weren't seeing my videos, plenty of people that weren't seeing my live streams on Instagram or Facebook. And I know there's a certain mainstream media narrative that typically gets promoted by the people who own these social media corporations and companies. And if you speak out about anything that is not part of that narrative, regardless of your political ideology, whether you are far left, which is probably what I consider myself to be, or somebody who is far right, there's still that centrist point of view, even though there's limits within that centrism, that is, I guess, quote unquote, socially acceptable. There's a political framework or theory for this. It's called the Overton window, where you have a generally accepted public policy with that's this quote unquote center. The left to the left of that means more freedom to the right of that means more restriction, which is part of the reason why the presidential election of 2016 should have been Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump because they're polar opposites of each other. But then you end up with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton, quite honestly, at least in my opinion, would have, if, if Hillary Clinton had 
decided to become the Republican nominee for the presidency of the United States, she would have been a more appealing presidential candidate than Donald Trump because she's more establishment Republican rather than Donald Trump, who's just... Yeah, she was the equivalent of Jeb Bush, right? Bingo. Yes. And she ran as a Democrat, which goes to show you how far that far left in the United States is completely destroyed. For a, it, it, It's completely almost eradicated at this point. But there's that sort of not anything outside of the mainstream we're seeing that more often on social media and and how it's becoming more censored so when mainstream news outlets or mainstream social media outlets decide to censor points of view that rep that speak for the unseen unheard unrepresented etc then where else are you going to hear or see people that are willing to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves or who don't have a platform for themselves that's where artists that's why artists should become more politically involved because the arts have always been a form of protest the arts have always been a form of rebellion the arts have always been anti-establishment and the best forms of expression have always gone against the mainstream narrative. Absolutely. I mean, with the social media thing, really, the, 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 the incident which really blew my mind and just kind of blew the whole issue wide open for, for me personally was the Hunter Biden laptop thing oh during the goodness. election of 2020. Wow. I mean, I, when I, when I realized what was happening there, I, I mean, I, it was almost like a... I don't know. I was like, I was just so disillusioned mm -hmm. with the whole of the media establishment in a way that I just completely kind of waved away people complaining about it before, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like, you know, it's not that bad. Uh -huh. But when I, when I fully grasped what happened there, it just, I, I don't know. I, I, it just seems to me that the whole system is so fundamentally rotten and it's very difficult to see in the instance of the United States how it's going to improve. But let me let me ask you though about your own, you know, your your activism and your involvement in it. Like prior to yeah to twenty twenty, that was when I I mean I, I I knew you were I knew I knew you had strong opinions prior to that, but you were very involved in that whole movement of of twenty twenty. But like, tell me a little bit about about prior to that how you know, how much you'd been involved in being directly involved, I guess, in, in politics. You know, so, so a lot, and, and I, and I kind of want to say something before I answer that question about the media. Mm -hmm. I knew the mainstream, what opened my eyes to the mainstream media and how crazy it was, was not only some of the legislation that Bill Clinton passed, most notably the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which took a bunch of news networks and consolidated them into six major news networks, which controls 90% of what everybody watches and consumes. But for me, what changed, what truly changed my opinion on social media was, I want to say it was 13 years ago, 14 years ago, I played a show in Susa, Tunisia. Yes, in Northern Africa. And I played a show there. And this was right around the time of, I think it was 08 or 09. It was right around the time of Arabs, the Arab Spring Movement, and Occupy Wall Street. And if you remember in Occupy Wall Street, there the mainstream media of the United States were just showing a couple of people getting arrested, a couple of cops pulling dragging people away with handcuffs, etc. I remember watching Al Jazeera in Arabic with English subtitles in that hotel room in Tunisia. And 
I'm seeing Occupy Wall Street protesters getting beaten up by cops, getting pepper sprayed by cops, getting thrown into the back of squad cars by cops, cops um, attacking them with military grade weapons. And the mainstream media in the United States wasn't showing any of that. They weren't showing any of that. And then I would go on my Twitter feed and Twitter was just showing, oh, there's a couple of minor arrests, a couple of disturbances here, a broken window here and there, nothing to see here. And that was completely not what was happening. So here I am in Northern Africa watching a news organization based out of the United Arab Emirates. And they're showing what's actually happening in the United States. Yet none of the none of the major networks in the United States are showing me what's truly going on. And of the six major news networks in the United States, five of them, their world headquarters is in New York City. The other is CNN. They're based out of Atlanta. You can get from Atlanta to New York City door to door in less than three in about three hours or so. JFK Airport drops you off at Terminal 2 on Delta Airlines. You take a bus across the water. You're there, you're there and a half hour later. It's easy. And at that point, I knew that the mainstream news, mainstream news, mainstream news in the United States was, ter- was, was completely off the charts. It was terrible. There's a magnificent book that I suggest everybody read. It's called Hate Incorporated. Hate Inc. It's by a former Rolling Stones writer named Matt Taibbi. And he talks about how the similarities in presentation and ideology of mainstream media is basically the same. How it's become a game show. On the front of the cover, he has Sean Hannity, who works for Fox News. And on the back, I think he was Rachel Maddow. Or I think it's reversed. But and if you look at both of their presentations of political conversation and discourse, it's essentially the same. It's just the ideology is different, but the presentation is essentially the same. And both sides work against each other to manufacture this manufacture this cacophonous mess of craziness that we see the American mainstream media is. It's now. almost like it's a game. Right, that's what I always think when that's I watch it. cable news. That's exactly it's it. like it's being played as a kind of sport. That's exactly what the book talks about. That's exactly what the right. book talks. The book talks about how political coverage is almost like watching ESPN Sports Center. Yeah, exactly. How you have you know people keeping score. There's this state has this many votes. This state has this many votes. It's not more different than saying, hey, the. The Los Angeles Clippers have 32 points. The San Diego, San Francisco, the, you know, the Golden State Warriors have 46 points. We're at halftime. Is there really any difference? And this is not politics. Is, should not be presented as a sport. Politics is how people live their day to day lives. This is what it is. Yeah, there's got to there's got to be some give and take, right? Because that's the thing. I, whenever I watch cable news, it's always like you, you have they, they kind of pay lip service to having a p- opposing points of view on, right? But it's almost like the the two sides of the argument. I mean, no one ever gives an inch for a start, so it's just like it's like two lawyers just like hammering it out at, you know, at each other, and then at the end, it's all smiles and high fives, right? Because we've just we're just doing our job here, and no one really believes in anything, and like you know, that's just it. You know, which is a crazy way, as you say, of conducting a a process which is supposed to be, you know, democracy and it's supposed to really matter in a way that almost nothing else matters, right? Exactly, exactly. This isn't about, you know, it's not about keeping score. It's about making sure that we have people in positions, decision-making positions who, who can do the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people. Yet, it just seems that 
it, it's it's completely gone away from that. It's about who's right and not what's the truth. It, it's it's completely crazy. But getting back to the original question you asked me a few minutes ago about my activism, so much of that was not only just me living in the United States as a black person in America, but a lot of that was when I was in graduate school. So much of that came from the internships that I had. I was, I was, I was an intern at the International Rescue Committee, so I really got involved with the cause of refugee resettlement in that area. I got quite involved in that. Um, I was uh, I interned for World Relief, which is another refugee resettlement organization. I then ended up with a community development fellowship at Bon Secours Community Works, which is a community development corporation on the west side of Baltimore. And that's really, on, on again, the west side of Baltimore, which is, again, one of the most economically disadvantaged areas, not only in Baltimore, but quite honestly, the United States. And I really, I was, I was, I was working with people who, in communities who didn't have anything, that they were wondering, you know, how are the why is the crime so terrible? How are we going to clean up the streets? And I learned so much of my time there, and that really was the catalyst for not only continuing to become active, but continuing my education. Because I was going through my divorce at the time, I ended up moving to North Carolina. I did another master's degree at Wake Forest involving intercultural services and healthcare. Because again, when I was working at Bon Secours Community Works, it was connected to the hospital, the Bon Secours Hospital on the west side of Baltimore, which was the only hospital in that area. So I understood so many of the public health issues that people in the community, those communities were dealing with. I understood the health disparities that people were dealing with. I, I certainly saw the, the, the medical apartheid that was taking place, not only in that community, but the, in different economically disadvantaged and poor communities in Baltimore and how that affected other communities. And you could see it see it in other cities across the United States, which was what led me to get my second master's degree. And then, and that's really, and then when I got the second master's degree, that's really when I was, I was again, working with refugees in Greensboro, North Carolina. I really had a better understanding of the healthcare system of the United States. I started becoming more at, started advocating more for healthcare some type of universal health care, whether it's Medicare for all or something like what we what the UK has with the National Health Service, which is essentially a public option system. And then, and again, I knew a lot of what Barack Obama tried to do with the health, the Affordable Care Act was 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 total BS because it was essentially Mitt Romney's health care plan, which he got from the Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative think tank. That's a whole other conversation. But so again, so much of my activism came from not only my life experience, but then formal education and backing that up with my lived experiences, not only through internships, but being around in living in a city where where economic hell, living in a city where economic disparity began. Yes. You're probably like, well, Joe, what do you mean by that? Baltimore was the first city in the United States to implement what's called a racial covenant where they segregated people based upon the color of your skin. So if you were a black person, you could. Is that right? Baltimore, Maryland. Yes. Happened in, I think, in 1910, where 
you have if you're black you can't live in this area where predominantly white people live if you're white you can't live in this area where predominantly black people live that concept is called redlining baltimore invented redlining and the effects of redlining in baltimore are still present to this day still ever present so this is correct my shaky history here but this is um not part of jim crow or is it part of jim crow this is this is not this is not during jim crow but it's a remnant of jim crow it's a remnant of jim crow because yeah okay so it's like coming out of yeah that post civil war thing into like um yeah supposedly a better time but in practice not really it wasn't it wasn't exactly yeah so and again jim crow obviously had so many sure just because quote-unquote jim crow was over doesn't necessarily mean that jim the the lasting effects of jim crow died off immediately there's still is there's still plenty of redlining and and blockbusting and inequality taking place right now in the united states when it comes to home ownership and mm. and and obviously wealth inequality etc and then and again not to get too deep into those types of discussions but so much of my activism came from not only being in a city where I saw wealth inequality. I witnessed it. I witnessed it every day. I witnessed it every day. When I, where I was, where I lived in my apartment that I had when I was living in downtown Baltimore, when I was going through my divorce, I was living in Charles, I was living in an area called Mount Vernon. I was living in Mount Vernon. If I walked mm-hmm. three blocks to three blocks East, I was at Baltimore city's jail. Three blocks east. Right. If I walked two two and a half blocks east, I was at where most of season five of The Wire was filmed. If I go, if I drove a half mile west of where I was living, I was go. I would go through a neighborhood called Bolton Hill. Bolton Hill looked like the Cosby Show houses, like a neighborhood of the Cosby Show houses. If I go another two traffic lights west of that. I'm in an area called Upton. If you remember the Freddie Gray riots that took place back in April of 2015 at the corner of um, North Avenue and Pennsylvania Avenue where that CVS was, that's Upton. From, so from there to where I used to live was a mile. And you had completely different de- um, demographics, completely different socioeconomic statuses. Everything was different. That type of hyper-segregation, that's not organic. That is man-made. That's man-made. And when you, when you look at a half a million dollar brownstone house in, on one street, and then you look at another street a half a block away, and you see a, a house that's completely boarded up, that's a problem. That's a problem. That's not organic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, that's the kind of difference I guess I was getting at when I first, my first question when we started talking about this sort of contrasting to an extent the experience in European countries and and in the United States is the fact that that kind of racial segregation stuff is just completely baked into the history and I'm not I'm not seeking to like play down racism in Europe at all like I'm it, it's a absolutely a, a thing um absolutely a big thing I agree but it's 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 a it's a different thing you know, and the way that it's baked into the history of the US and the way the US developed as a country makes it different, I think. Uh, and as a as an observer of it, as someone who's traveled around the US quite a lot now, 
it is it is different i think and it's 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 pervasive in a way which is it's pretty scary frankly like you know coming over and and, and seeing it firsthand and i'm you know yeah it's, it's pretty awful I, I i agree with you and it's interesting you bring up the differences between racism in the uk and europe as opposed to the differences of racism in the united states because and again i have no problem sharing this because i've I've traveled extensively, not only around the United States, but extensively around Europe. So I certainly think I'm a bit more qualified than most to speak on this, especially as a black person who has traveled around Europe. There are certain places in Europe where I can feel the racism. I can feel sure. the that sort of negative vibe. And this is going to sound somewhat counterintuitive, but I'll explain it for everybody to, so that everybody understands. The places where I feel the racism are typically places where I expect to see other black people. Right. Okay. That's interesting. Like, well, well, why is that? Yeah. I'm like, why would that be? Well, typically places where I expect to see other black people have had a history of colonialism. So the places where I expect to see other black people are places like London, places like Amsterdam, places like Brussels, Belgium. Obviously we could talk for hours about the history of the Belgian Congo and what King Leopold did in what is now known as the Democratic Republic of Congo and Congo. Yeah. We could talk about that for days. We could talk about Fra Paris, France and France specifically and what they, how many countries they've colonized and what they've done, especially in 1804 with the Haitian revolution to St. To Louverture. That's a whole, that's a whole other thing also, but the places where I experience little to no negative vibes and or racism are places where I don't expect to see other black people and places that have had some sort of recent ethnic conflict. Okay. We probably like, well, well, why yep. would that seem strange, but I'll explain that too because places that don't necessarily have a history of colon colonization have a tendency to not look at people who don't look like them and feel it's as if it's is their duty to subjugate them simply on the basis of their skin color or basis of or, or anything that is not different from them and places that have had some sort of recent ethnic conflict They've realized that having this ethnic conflict was silly because you speak another language or you speak another dialect of a language or you're a different religion and it was really dumb to fight you all all these years ago because because we just spoke different languages and we didn't like you because you were Muslim and you didn't like us because we were Christian. It, it, that's all stupid. So naturally- Yeah, I mean, it's a horrific process and people have lived it know that firsthand only too well right yeah of course i mean of course and this is part of the reason why i always love going to areas in the former yugoslavia i always love going over there because again they number one don't have a history of colonization at least from my understanding and number two they've gone well, through they were they were colonized by uh turkey for hundreds of years exactly <laughs> this is the situation there. exactly which would explain why sorry there are parts of sarajevo bosnia where you're speaking turkish and if you walk around, yeah. hell, the word Baskarjika, the old part of downtown Sarajevo, it's a it's a compound Turkish word meaning I think old city or center city. I can't remember exactly what it means. But yeah, you go. I walk around the streets over there. I'm not feeling a negative vibe where I for, where for example, if I'm walking around, let's say Vienna, Austria, I'll walk in certain areas and you could feel somebody's eyes saying, "Hmm, what's that black guy doing there?" 
Hmm. Yeah, Austria is um, Austria is ground zero as far as I can see for European races in Bayern. Yeah, it's it's a, it, it can get that way. But if I'm walking around, you know, Zagreb, Croatia, for example, or Ljubljana, Slovenia, I might walk into a shop and it's like, oh, there's a black guy here. Cool. You know, it's a different sort of energy, and I can't explain it any other way than that. Yeah. But. I'm trying to do the best I can trying to share my lived experiences through that. It's a really interesting observation and it's one that I hadn't ever really considered, but it makes complete sense when you, when you put it like that. And, and as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's a, it's in a slightly different way than having, um, as, as I, as I put it at the, at the top of this, yeah. having it baked in to the economy in the way that it is in the U S right. So like the way you've just described it is a kind of like sort of underlying psychological thing but it's almost in the abstract. But in the US, it's a real, it's really tangible, you know? It's like, it is just part of the way things have always been done since the very beginning. Yes, and, and, and it's interesting you mentioned the tangibility of that inequality because I think the tangibility of that inequality has evolved over time. And you're probably like, well, how could that be? Well, power is felt, it's never seen. You don't see an earthquake, but you see the result of the tremors of an earthquake. You don't see a hurricane, but you see trees blown down and houses get flooded. If you think about inequality in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you saw police beating black people up. You saw police, you saw white water fountains and quote unquote colored water fountains. You saw segregated schools. You saw black schools and white schools. You could clearly see that there was a not only just white supremacy, I'm, I'm going to say this, when you add white supremacy to white privilege, you have white power. And that was when you could clearly see the oppression of black people, not only through socioeconomic means, but physically, especially in the 50s and 40s, 50s and 60s. That's, that's one thing. But then when you, over time, you don't see as many black people being whipped and beaten, <coughs> etc. like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But now you're seeing that other forms of oppression taking place economically, job hiring practices, etc. It's a different form. It's taken on a different form. So you understand that, for example, you go to a job interview, for example, and you you can't see the racism, but you can feel the racism. That's, tr that's power working. That's power working when you can feel the racism as opposed to obviously seeing it. Yeah. And that's what, uh, that's what is truly difficult to understand as a white person. Yep. Like it really is very, very difficult to, to try and like empathize with that. I mean, I, and I don't mean like you can feel, feel sympathy, but like actually trying to trying to imagine what it's actually like is extraordinarily tough. It's different. It's different. You, if you get pulled over in a car, you're not worrying about if this could be a life and death situation. Mm. If 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 you're a black person and you get pulled over and you know everything's good, your taillight's not busted, your car insurance is paid up, your registration is is current you're doing under the speed limit and you still get pulled over and you're wondering why the hell am I being pulled over? And then you start to worry. Most white people will never have to understand what that feels like because again, racism, America, it is what it is. And I don't necessarily think, again, I've, 
I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe, but I've not lived in Europe extensively, but I've kind of traveled around a lot. I don't necessarily think that sort of, those sorts of fears or aspersions exist to the level they do in the United States because the, hell, America was built on racism. America was built on racism. Yeah, quite literally. It, it, yeah, literally. And, and again, racism is a function of economics, which is why one of the, one of the, one of the points that I'm so passionate about politically is about reparations for American descendants of enslaved Africans and reparations for anybody who was formerly colonized. Because again, so many, yeah, yeah that's, I, I'm so, because yeah, when you think about centuries of inequality based upon countries that colonized darker skinned people and hell we both we were both born in a country that colonized a whole lot of people a whole lot of folks and well yeah i mean my, my own family background is actually irish so we, <laughs> there's plenty of people in my family who fucking hate the english for that exact reason yeah yeah and, and again i was born in england my parents are from trinidad and tobago trinidad and tobago was a colony of england until 1962 if you look at most of the caribbean most of the caribbean was colonized by england and anybody that england didn't get france or the netherlands got or spain got lucky with um with yeah the Dominican Republic. Well, I mean, the entire world was basically carved up by a, a few European powers who had the, you know, the, the navy and whatever yes. to do it. Yes, right? that's essentially what happens. Yes, you know? yes, and it's, it's history, and we are still living the consequences, and no doubt we'll be living the consequences for centuries hence. Quite frankly, right, and we've been living under those sorts of conditions for what, 500, 600 years now? Allegedly, a Spaniard by the name of Christopher Columbus quote-unquote discovered America? Really? <laughs> really? Is that so? Really? Come on now. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, man, I think we've run out of time here. This has been awesome. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. I, I, I did too. I did too. So, yeah. Thank you so much, man. You're very welcome. Um, what have you got coming up? Ah, more shows, more shows. I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska this coming weekend. I've got um, the Connections Music Festival after that, Electric Love Music Festival after that, the Word, Sound, and Power Festival in Minneapolis after that. A few other shows coming up in August. September is going to be reasonably busy. Then I'm back in Europe in October, and I've already got a few things going already? on in England. Yeah, yeah, a few things going on in England around. Um, got Leeds, got... Um, Gosh, let me think. Brighton. I know I'm doing Manchester towards the end of the month. So yeah, there's a few things going on. And other than that, that's cool. it. Maybe our paths will cross. Yeah. Maybe our paths will cross. Hopefully so. Awesome. Hopefully so. We'll get some Nando's or something. But yeah, other than that, I'm just, you know, taking my daughter and her adopted sister to gymnastics classes and diving lessons and sitting here just trying to get my head wrapped around learning Ableton so I can figure out what I want to do well, that's musically. Fun. That's definitely fun. Yeah, because now more than ever, I'm understanding that liberation comes through creation. So <laughs> that's also the other path forward. Cool, man. Well, yeah, thanks. And I hope we uh, run into each other soon. Yes, sir. Thank you, brother. Yeah, that was Joe Nice. And that's the exact kind of stuff I wanted when I started this show. And we've had a few of them like this. The Dave Clark one was pretty meaty in terms of other 
topics other than music. And it's just great to talk to someone who thinks deeply about other things, you know? And obviously uh, the political situation in in the US is is really distinctive. And I think one of the kind of, one of the tendencies is that we think about our own politics in our own countries, wherever you live. I mean, if you live in the West particularly, and if you live in Europe, it's the kind of assumption that it's just the same as that. And America is really distinctive, like for historical reasons, but also for other reasons, including the way the political system works, you know, there's the way in which people interact with each other, the, you know, the history of, of the country generally, not just slavery, but everyone who came as an immigrant to the country and their interactions with it and their interactions with the indigenous population and all the rest of it. It's just, it's, it's a unique place and it has unique problems. Some of which are analogous to problems elsewhere, but some of which are not the same. So it's great to talk to someone who has his boots firmly on the ground over there and get some real insight into what's happening and what has been happening in the last few years. So yeah, loved it. Love Joe, great guy. And um, important DJ as well, you know, not just politics. He's a really, really important person uh, in the development of underground music in the US and is underappreciated, I think, generally speaking, for that. So great to have him on the show. Love the episode. Okay, few things to mention. I played a special guest appearance at Fabric in London last Friday night and it was super fun. I didn't know I was going to be doing it until the day before. So I had to get on a plane from Palmer, which is where I spend most of my time these days. And turned up with uh, Chloe Robertson and DJ ADHD and spun some 140 and it was a lot of fun. I haven't played at Fabric on a Friday night since about 2010 or something like that. So it's completely different, of course, on Fridays. And um, yeah, it was it was great. Really, really enjoyed it. Got a few more shows coming up. In fact, quite a few shows in August. So if you check my Giga Tools, if you go to uh, scubaofficial.io and get to my list of gigs. I'm in the States and going to be in Barcelona as well. And um, yeah, just playing a few more shows and going to be playing more going forwards. It's a long time since I played a full DJ schedule. And um, yeah, I mean, the shows are fun at least. Sometimes the traveling isn't so much fun, but you know, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, also just announced a new track with Bakongo, follow up to our Over Again tune. So it's called 105. It's out on Hot Flush on the 29th of July. We don't have anything this week on Hot Flush labels. But uh, like I said, yeah, 29th of July. And there's a remix of Over Again on that release by a producer who I really, really, really like at the moment. That's um, Hassan Abu Alam from Cairo in Egypt. He's just an awesome producer. He's been around for a long time, but I'd never heard of him until quite recently. But yeah, awesome, awesome guy. And awesome remix of Over Again. So yeah, that's out, like I said, 29th of July, hotflush.bankant.com for a pre-order right now. And um, I think that's it this week. Been a good episode. I really enjoyed it. So um, leave us a five-star rating wherever you're listening to this. Join us for Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords. And follow that Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes. I'll be back same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you.
Nova. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.